This episode of the MJ Cast is brought to you by Audible, the internet's leading provider of audiobooks. With over 400,000 downloadable titles, they range from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, business, and self-development. Head over to audibletrial.com slash themjcast and sign up for a one-month free trial and to get your free audiobook. Show Audible and the MJ Cast some love. That's audibletrial.com slash themjcast. The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I want to see you! <laughs> I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass, you become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the MJ Cast. I'm your host, Jamin Bull, and today's episode really is a special one because it's the first episode in a series to come out in celebration of History 25. 25 years ago, the King of Pop, Michael Jackson, released an incredibly introspective, creative, and gutsy album, History. And with that came a whole new era of short films and imagery. During the History era, Michael embarked on a journey of visual creativity with Stephen Paul Whitsitt, who was Michael's personal photographer for a few years in the mid-90s during the History period. Growing up near Detroit, The music of Motown had a huge influence on Stephen's life from an early age and shaped his career as a photographer and photojournalist. He has shot album covers, music video stills and concerts for many iconic musicians, including Steve Miller, Bruce Springsteen, Pearl Jam, Dave Matthews Band and Willie Nelson. Stephen has also published his work in a wide variety of internationally recognised magazines. But his most memorable music industry experience was as Michael Jackson's personal photographer. During their years working together, he shot publicity portraits and stills for the Scream, Childhood and You Are Not Alone videos, as well as single covers. Michael entrusted Stephen to work with him on capturing a range of events, including private moments. Plus, the official Michael Jackson opus features Stephen's photography. We're so lucky to have you on the show, Stephen. Welcome to the MJ Cast. Thank you so much. I've been wanting to talk to you for a very long time. I've got a couple of friends uh, in France, Bryce Najar and Hector Barjot, who have spoken to you before. They've always told me that you are uh, a great, wonderful person to, to speak to about your uh, collaborative efforts with Michael Jackson. Thank you. Thank you. And both of them are really pretty incredible. I got to go to Hector's basement and it's so cool. (laughs) One thing we'll probably discuss is the smile single. And it's the first time I've actually physically seen the smile single because I don't own a copy of it myself. So the first time I saw it was his copy in his basement. Amazing. I tried to distract him so I could run off with it, but he wasn't having any of that. (laughs) I love his videos. It's incredible how much stuff he has got, actually. He's got to be one of the most prolific collectors in the world. Yes, indeed. So where are you Skyping in from today? I live in Durham, North Carolina, USA. And I'm assuming you would have been on lockdown for a little while now as well. Uh, Yes, it's been... I don't even know. It's been at least three weeks, maybe four weeks 
something like that. Yeah. The interesting thing about being a photographer, if I'm not out shooting, then where I am is where I am right now, which is sitting at my desk with a computer in front of me and two monitors on. And, you know, I spend a lot of my life just, you know, looking at computer monitors, tweaking photos and stuff like that. So it hasn't been that much of an adjustment. That's the same for me. I, I actually like the indoors as well and love, uh, you know, creating different things like podcasts. So mm-hmm. <laughs> for me, it hasn't been that big of an adjustment. It's been an opportunity actually, but it's um, devastating to see what's going on in the US at the moment, especially over the last week. It's uh, My heart goes out to everybody in the US, well, all over the world really, but especially in the US with what you guys are dealing with right now with those numbers coming through. It's pretty frightening. And what I realize is that we don't really have any experience with dealing with this. Most people have never dealt with anything like this. I've been trying to talk to friends a lot and it's a time when it's really easy to um, think that, oh, well, my response to this is the right one and what everybody else is doing is stupid or, or not correct or whatever. It would be great if we could all just be a little bit kinder with each other and just have a little bit of patience with one another because we don't have a lot of basis for anything like this happening before. Yeah, yeah, I agree completely. It is definitely a time for for tolerance and reaching out. Stephen, when we do interviews like this, one thing we like to do is go way back to somebody's childhood to hear about how the dots connected in them being able to come to work with the king of pop in their professional careers. So if you don't mind, could we start off with your childhood and and hearing a little bit about where you grew up? The town I grew up in is about 60 miles north of Detroit. It's a town called Port Huron, Michigan. It's an interesting place. It's right at the very base of Lake Huron. A lot of outdoor activities there. A lot of, um, it's beautiful. It's really, really lovely. There's a bridge that goes from my town to Ontario, Canada. It's the only connecting point to Canada north of Detroit until you get way up into the upper peninsula of Michigan. So there's a lot of traffic that goes through there. You know, the thing that I always say is that nothing cool was ever supposed to happen to me. I mean, my, my expectations of my life were, you know, the kind of student I was in school. I was not with the kids that they were prepping to go to college. By the time I graduated, I didn't think that I was smart enough to go to college. I did blue collar work. I did construction. I worked on the assembly line, Pontiac motors, building cars. I kind of got in a little bit of trouble in my hometown and ended up joining the military. And though I hated every second of the military, the one thing that I loved about it was that it really, really widened my perspective. My very first duty station after school in the military was an island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And it was, you know, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm traveling. How cool is this? And though... I never really did great in the military as far as liking being yelled at and told what to do. I always loved the traveling and I got to go to Japan and I got to go to Australia and I got to go to, um, you know, just literally all over the world. So it was the Navy that you joined, wasn't it? Yes. And what was it about the Navy that you didn't enjoy? (laughs) Before I knew it in my head, in my heart, I've always had the heart of an artist 
which means that I always question things, you know, and, and if they would say, well, move that over there, then I would ask why. When you're in the military, they don't really like you to ask why. And, and I just kind of saw things from a very different perspective. And, and really, that was the beginning of my education. I, when I was in the military, I read a lot of books. It was sort of just the beginning of becoming a more well-rounded human being. Yeah. Yeah, got it. Okay. And then, so my understanding is that your love for photography started to develop when you were in the military. Is that correct? Right. I needed to do something else besides drink all the time. And so I picked up a camera. I just kind of really enjoyed it. There was just something, you know, there was just something about it, photography that I liked so that by the time I got out, the the last duty station that I was at before I got out was Japan. And while I was in Japan, I bought myself a Nikon camera. And then I took one junior college class in photography and kind of started learning the very, very basics. I really, really enjoyed it. I, I didn't know that I wanted to become a photographer until after I was out of the military. And so my understanding is that the next step for you was attending the Brooks Institute of Photography in Santa Barbara in California. Cast your mind back to those days as a student at the Brooks Institute. Can you remember what sort of areas of photography you started to gravitate towards even as a student in the field? What happened was that when I was getting ready to get out of the Navy, I felt like I deserved something for surviving it. In the months right before I got out, I got out the globe and I spun it around and I thought, I'm going to give myself a trip. And of all the places I could go on the planet, what's the place that scares me the most? Because I've always felt like you should do the things you're afraid of. And so on the day I got out, I took all of my money and I went and bought a round trip ticket for Nairobi, Kenya. And I went there by myself with a backpack and a camera and 80 rolls of film with the idea that while I'm there, I'm going to figure out what I want to do for the rest of my life. And so while I was there, I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and I went on safari and did all kinds of fun stuff. But I thought in regards to what I want to do with the rest of my life, instead of thinking about a specific job, I thought about a lifestyle I wanted to live. And I wanted to have a lifestyle where my phone would ring and someone would say to me, Steve, we want you to fly to blank to do blank. Okay, travel. Who travels? And I thought, well, photographers get to travel. And so that was it. I was like, well, that's what I'm going to do. I'll be a photographer. We'll catch up to that part of the story a little bit later on. But, but so when I came back, I thought, okay, I never thought that I was smart enough to go to college, but I think that maybe I was wrong about that. And so I applied for and got accepted to Brooks Institute. And at the time, Brooks was one of the top three photography schools in the United States very, very well known and very, very, um, you know, if you told people you went to Brooks, then that was kind of like, you know, like going to Harvard actually. And, and so it was a, it was a really, really cool place to go. Did you find yourself developing certain niche areas that you wanted to get into, even when you were a student at Brooks or were you more just lapping up whatever they were teaching you? 
Well, there were a couple of things. One, I knew that I had to, for one thing, I didn't have a lot of money. And so I had to work while I was in school. And initially the school got me a job working as a janitor in the motion picture department. That was really great because suddenly all the students that were motion picture students became my friends. I would let them sneak into the motion picture lab at two o'clock in the morning. But I always <laughs> was like, I, but I want to work on your on your film set. Really early on, I was interested in, in film as well. And that gave me the confidence later on after I graduated to be able to be on a film set and know, you know, and just and just be comfortable, not be like, like, oh, my gosh, I, what am I doing here? I, I, I sort of knew how the process worked a little bit. The other thing was, is that when I started thinking about what kind of photography I wanted to do, I realized that essentially, and most people will think this is crazy what, that I say this, but essentially I'm a shy person. And I started thinking about shyness and shyness is in my, in my definition of it is fear of people. And so I thought, okay, well, just like I've had success at forcing myself to do what I'm afraid of by going to Africa, if I force myself to become a people photographer, I will absolutely have to get over my shyness. And, mm. you know, I can report to you now a little over 30 years later that I'm still a shy person, but I have gotten so comfortable in the practice of forcing myself to talk to people that most people have no idea that I'm shy. I'm what I call an extroverted introvert. I can be comfortable and especially I'm most comfortable when I have a camera in my hand. If I don't have a camera in my hand, then I'm a little bit more like, what am I doing here? But, but photography was the vehicle for me to be able to explore that and to become much more comfortable interacting with people. You know, that's interesting to me because I also am quite a shy person with social anxiety myself. You're the second photographer I've spoken to now who has said pretty much that exact thing. Harrison Funk is another photographer who I've interviewed. He said when he got into the field, it was more to do with sports photography, but he primarily did it because he'd go to parties and he found being behind the camera comforting. Mm -hmm. in his anxieties. And he also said it was a great way to get girls because they love having photos <laughs> taken of themselves. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we, we can discuss that too. But, uh, but for me, really, it was, I count my career as starting on June 15th, 1990. That was the day that I graduated from Brooks. Later on this year, it will be 30 years since that day. What I've been thinking about for about the last year is what... So what has photography taught me? What have I, what have I learned? How, you know, and really photography has been the vehicle for me to examine my own heart and my own humanity. If I'm successful in my photography, then hopefully people look at the photos and it pings something in their heart and in their humanity that helps them to open up as well. To me, that's what an artist is supposed to do. How often I'm successful at that, I don't know. You know, I don't think that that I'm a good judge of that. I would ask someone else how often I'm successful in that. But but it's like that's what I endeavor to do, 
you know, and, and I endeavor to pour my own humanity into every image that I take. Look, I think that heart is definitely there in your work, Stephen, and, and some of the photographs you've taken in your career, especially of, of Michael, are some of the most poignant, beautiful photos of him that have ever been taken. Oh, thank you. Can't wait to get into that a little bit further. Now, on that note, to do with uh, Michael Jackson, do you remember before working with him, what were your, your perceptions of him as an artist? Let's see. Well, I'm sure that this story will come up eventually. The, the thing is that growing up just north of Detroit in the 60s and 70s, I grew up on a steady diet of Motown. And I loved then and will love forever all of the Motown music, Stevie Wonder, the Supremes. And when the Jacksons came out, it was pretty extraordinary because they were just kids and they had a cartoon and they, you know, and it was so amazing. And music has always been huge to me. I think the first song that I ever obsessed over, I was probably like seven years old. You know, I mean, and music has been huge in my life ever since. And, and it's still huge. If I could turn the camera around, you could see my wall of records and <laughs> CDs over there. In my teen years, I really got into punk. And there was an element of that that was like, oh, you've got to reject all of the all of the old like establishment groups and, and stuff like that. And so there was certainly like a turning away from a lot of that stuff. But then later in my, you know, in my 20s, then it all kind of came back. And and of course, when Michael was starting to blow up as a solo artist it was like wow this is that same guy that was that was it, it was just it was crazy it was it was just amazing so uh, so i don't know if i want to tell you this story now or if we if we, if we do it when we talk about when i um when i first started working for him so i'll leave that up to you but there's a story about that to be honest, my next question is how you originally came to work with Michael anyway. My understanding is it's something to do with Sam Emerson, right? You became, you started working for Sam. There are so many elements of my working with Michael that are just kind of really weird flukes. And just getting to work with Sam was one of them. The career path of most photographers, at least when, when I came up, was you would start off, whether you went to school or not, you would start off with assisting other photographers. And the assistant's job is you set up the lights, you load the film, you go and drop the film off at the lab, you pick up lunch, you do all these things. And when I first moved to Los Angeles after I graduated from Brooks, I started assisting and I assisted for all kinds of photographers. I assisted for car photographers and food photographers and celebrity photographers and just the whole gambit. And I also did some work on some TV commercials and, and stuff like that. And just all across the board, all kinds of stuff as happens in any group of people in a, a type of work field, you build community with other people that are doing the same thing that you are. So I met a lot of other assistants and we'd exchange numbers and stuff. And one day my phone rang and this guy that I had met on a shoot called me up and he said, Hey, I've got an impacted molar. Can you cover for me tomorrow? And I was mm. like, sure. And this is where we get into a little bit of a, uh, I'm going to just be honest with what he said. I, I really don't like to disparage people and, and I don't know what 
your listeners what kind of relationship they have with certain photographers, but I don't want to speak badly about them because I wouldn't want them speaking badly about me, but I'll just say what this guy said. So this guy said, the photographer is kind of a jerk, but the photo shoot's really cool. And I was like, okay, I've worked with jerk photographers many times <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, but what is it? And he's like, well, it's a Michael Jackson video. And I was like, okay, cool. So I covered for him. And as it turned out, they were probably in their first week of shooting the black or white video and it was working for Sam. And I will say one thing I worked for Sam for three years. He must've liked something about me, but he, um, we, he, he was challenging to work for. I'll just say that. And his talent is without question. He's like an extraordinary photographer, but he was very challenging to work for. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Do you remember what your first ever interaction with Michael Jackson was like? Did you interact with him on that black or white shoot or was it more Sam was? Sam was always kind of like, I don't want you talking to Michael. You don't have any reason to talk to Michael and all of that. I will say that just as a, as a little bonus, the very first day that we were shooting onto the set walked Paul and Linda McCartney. And it was one of the few times in my life that I was ever just completely gobsmacked, like, like, Oh my God. Um, <laughs> so that was, and that was like the day one. A couple of weeks into it, we were shooting at night in downtown L.A., and we were doing the part of the video with the cat. And I could be wrong about this, but I remember speaking to the trainer of the cat, and every place that I've looked, they say that that cat was a panther. I was told that it was a black leopard that you couldn't see the spots because there was black on black, but there was that the actual cat was a leopard. It was not a panther. I could be wrong about that, but that was what I was told. So anyway, there's a real famous shot that Sam took of Michael with the cat, the cat sitting on a box and Michael's got his arm around it. And I think that my first interaction was sort of like walking him back around the lights and, and all that. And it was just like, this way, Mr. Jackson. And that was mm. that. Um, Very professional. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, Sam was always like, you don't have any reason to talk to him and all of that. And I never did. The day that we were at Neverland and we were shooting the promos for Michael's interview with Oprah, I made the horrible mistake of leaving Sam's jacket in Michael's theater because I was supposed to be in charge of his jacket insert sarcasm here. Um, and, and so we, we drove all the way out of the, out of Neverland and he's like, where's my jacket? And I'm like, I don't know. And so we turned around and he's like, get in there and get it. And I walked back into the theater and there was Michael. And it was the first time I had ever been with him one-on-one -on -one. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Excuse me, Michael. I left Sam's jacket here. I don't mean to bother you. And he's like, no, no, that's okay. And I thought, I don't know if I'll ever have another opportunity to speak to him. So I just said, I said, you know, Michael, it's really an honor to get to work with you. And he said, Steve, it's an honor to work with you as well. 
was like, oh my God. First of all, he even knows my name. And, <laughs> and you know, and I just was like, I was blown away by that. It was worth it to get chewed out for having forgotten the jacket and, and all of that. I can't remember any other time during the three years that I spoke to Michael be, besides those two times. Mm. So that was it. I'm guessing your relationship was localized to the, to the work, to the art. It was. Uh, one of the things that bothered me after Michael passed was that a lot of people, some that I think should have known better, came out and claimed that they were really good friends with Michael. I just wouldn't do that. You know, Michael was my employer and I worked for him for a very, very short period of time. But it's like, I don't need to embellish what my relationship with him was. You know, later on in the conversation, I can tell you about some really, really poignant moments that we had. It was very, very limited. I would feel so uncomfortable with portraying it as anything other than what it was. To be honest, having spoken to so many people that worked with Michael, it becomes pretty clear fairly quickly who's being genuine. Mm -hmm. Like you said before, there's people that had limited interaction, but, you know, like to make it like they were very close. Right. But, um, yeah, and, and obviously there's reasons why people do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think that the fact that you're willing to be so honest about your relationship with Michael is it speaks volumes to, to your character. So I think that's a really good thing. Oh, thank you. When you think back to black or white, what were your perceptions of him as an artist on the set? I think that I was just so blown away. It was beyond anything that I'd ever that I'd ever seen. I mean, I had been on a couple of film sets and I'd been on a couple of TV commercial sets, but it was the whole production was just like, holy crap, I've never seen anything like this. And just the amount of crew, there were, you know, hundreds of people working on that video. And, and there was John Landis for crying out loud and the bigness of his personality. So one of the things I, I do have a lot of different stories about experiences that I had while assisting. And I think that so much of that was very voyeuristic. I am a, a keen observer. And so I just would watch things and I would watch how things would play out and, and I would watch stuff. And even to this day, I think that my job is to see, my job isn't to come up with a definitive idea of what something is while I'm witnessing it. I only can really look at it in retrospect and say, oh, well, that seemed like that was what was going on. D does that make sense? It does. Actually, it, it's starting, some puzzle pieces are starting to fall together because, you know, um, having spoken to a couple of people who worked on that video, Vince Patterson and Kevin Stay, Vincent especially paints a picture of quite a, a tough shoot mm -hmm. where things weren't working out exactly as what people wanted and they tried to massage it to make the video make sense and flow as it was happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, and the thing to remember is that I was just Sam's assistant. The task that he gave me on the day that I arrived was here are 10 boxes of slides from what I shot yesterday, put all of these into slide pages. And that was what I did. I sat there with a light box and just put things into slide pages and made sure that they were right side up because if they were not right side up, then that was not a, not a good thing. That was it, you know? And the one thing that served me well as an assistant that serves me well now is that 
there was never anything that I was ever asked to do as an assistant that I would ever say no to because it was like my job was to make the photographer's job easier. So if Sam said, I need you to go pick up my dry cleaning, one would think that that would be outside of the purview of a photo assistant. But it's like, well, of course, because that's what he asked me to do. So that's what I do. And I think that maybe being in the military helped me with this. There isn't any work that's beneath me. I've cleaned toilets and I've, you know, I've mopped a lot of floors and I've done all of those things. And it's like, well, no, it's just work. All work is good and there isn't any work that's beneath me. So when I assisted Sam and, and other photographers, it was just like, yeah, what do you need me to do? I'll do it. You know, at some point after black or white, you got the opportunity to see the Super Bowl performance, mm-hmm. the first major pop artist, I guess, performing in the middle of a Super Bowl. Talk to me about your experience there. It was crazy. I didn't go to any of the rehearsals, so I wasn't sure what to exactly expect. And basically, we all met up at a hotel in Pasadena. The Super Bowl that year was in the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. The crew and and everybody, except Michael, of course, all got on the bus and they drove us into the tunnel underneath the stadium. And my job, Sam wanted me to be shooting up from the press booth with a really wide angle lens, getting the whole audience and everything. It was a different experience. I mean, it was funny because by the time I got up there, I got to see one play of the football game. And so it's like, (laughs) I've been to the Super Bowl, but I only saw one play. I remember myself, I was actually feeling terrible physically that day. I just was, I just, something going on with my stomach. And I I remember going to use the, the restroom. And as I was walking in, walking out was, and you might not know, even know this person's name, a legendary football player, Joe Namath, was coming out as I was coming in. And of course, he was coming out. I wasn't about to shake his hand. Um, but uh, but I, <laughs> but it was like, it was like, oh, my God, that's Joe Namath. How cool is that? And that was that stuck out in my memory. The event itself went so fast. It's just this blur. And I mean, and when I go back and look at it on on YouTube today, it was like, oh, wow, it's it seems a lot longer than when it was going on. It just went so fast. It was ridiculous. Well, really, it was 15 minutes, wasn't yeah. it, really? Something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, it was pretty fast. And so you were pretty far back from the action, elevated, capturing the whole crowd. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It would have been pretty special, though, to see uh, all the crowd flip over those placards to do the Heal the World performance. That was pretty cool. And the funny thing is, is so the stuff that happened then, because I was working for Sam, all of the film just went into his archive. So I, most of it, I never even really got to see anything of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, well, that is, I I found it um, amazing what you said earlier about not ever seeing the finished product of your smile photo shoot until visiting Hector. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Well, we can we can talk about that. I mean, I have I have some of the film. It, we can we can discuss sort of the um, the interesting things about what happened with with Michael and film once we get into that part of the story. We'll get into that. So that sounds um, good. Yeah. 
before we do get into that period of time where you were properly hired by Michael and then worked on that history era, I've got to ask about the Dangerous Tour. So you traveled a little bit on that tour, didn't you? I did. Initially, Sam took, and I was I was a little bit salty about this because I had worked for him for a while. He took his son out with him on tour as an assistant, and then he got married and he took his wife out as an assistant. I don't remember if his wife got pregnant, but she didn't go on the, on the last leg, the South America leg. And so finally Sam called me up and said, I want to take you with me. Great. It was fascinating. It was so cool because getting paid to travel, how cool is that? Getting to see all of those shows. The basic setup was that every city that we went to, we had a studio set up backstage where if Michael felt up to it, he would do a meet and greet with the local promoters and people that were VIPs that could somehow have enough pull that they could get backstage and get to meet Michael. And Sam would shoot a picture of all of them. And then we would process the film and get prints made and get an eight by 10 of everybody that we shot with Michael and get those distributed somehow. But so my job was to set that studio up and to um, make sure that it was ready to go before every show. And then the interesting thing was, is that Michael's dressing room was right next door. So every night that we were doing a show, I got to hear him do his warmups. Wow. And then I would be, just right next door when the band would gather and they would say their prayer before the show started. It was a weird thing to be at least an audio witness to. To hear Michael warm up every night was pretty wild. It was just really, really cool. So describe that for me. Were they like vocal warm-ups? Yeah, vocal warm-ups. He would do scales every night and that was it. He just, it was just tuning up his instrument, you know? Wow. So. <laughs> and you're privy to that. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this leg of the Dangerous Tour you were on is a pretty uh, infamous leg because uh, it, it finished in tragedy, really. Like the, the tour collapsed in on itself right. um, because of some terrible things that were going on back in, you know, domestically in the States with accusations against Michael Jackson from accusers that we now know are salacious claims. And then also his dependency that he developed and he had to be whisked away to Europe, I think, by Liz Taylor and put into a rehab facility. And then the tour finished quite early. Mm -hmm. Did you feel or notice any warning signs of anything like that going on when you were on the tour? Absolutely not. No, I, you know, I, I was a very, very, very small part of, of all of it. My job and Sam told me, you're not here to make friends with anyone. You're not here to do anything other than to service what I need as a photography assistant. And so yeah, yeah. I was really focused on that. I, I mean, he even told me, he's like, I don't ever want to see you pick up a camera and point it at Michael. If I tell you to shoot something, then you shoot it. But otherwise, you're not here to make photographs. You're here to keep track of my film and stuff like that. So I did that. So you never got a chance to shoot Michael on stage in that tour? Not a single time. Oh, man. You would have been like, geez, I want to get out there and give that a go. It was. And, and interestingly, so the last city we went to was Mexico City. So one of the nights in Mexico City, 
Madonna's tour, I think it was her girly girl show was they were in Mexico City at the exact same time. And my friend Neil Preston had worked for her and I was trying to get him to get me a photo credential to shoot her show, um, which never happened. So I didn't get to photograph her either. But um, but one night I'm racing from backstage to the front of the stage to bring Sam some film. And I go charging into this little tiny blonde woman. I'm like, Oh God, I'm so sorry. Excuse me. Excuse me. And I turn around and look back over my shoulder as I'm running away from her. And I had just literally run into Madonna. So there was that. Um, and and the, the cool thing was, is that their crew came and got to see our show for free and we got to go see their show for free while we were in uh, Mexico city. And that was really, it was really cool. I, I, I'm not the world's hugest Madonna fan, but it was really cool to get to see her one time. So that is awesome. Yeah. Let's take our first break to chat about our brand new sponsor here at the MJ cast. And we couldn't be more excited about it. That's because it's a company which we know Michael Jackson fans are going to love audible. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, business, and self-development. Every month, members get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, and access to daily news digests from The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post, as well as guided meditation programs. You can download titles and listen offline anytime, anywhere. The app is free and can be installed on all smartphones and tablets. You can listen across devices without losing your spot. And if you can't decide what to listen to, don't worry. You can keep your credits for up to a year and use them to binge on a whole series if you like. Being a history teacher and a huge fan of Michael Jackson, I love reading. Being a dad as well, I know that time's of the essence. And I'm sure parents out there know exactly what I mean. Audible allows me to read on the go. US listeners, you may wish to read the new version of Joe Vogel's Man and the Music, which is one of the best books ever written on Michael Jackson's artistry. With whole chapters of information devoted to Michael's solo albums, he takes you inside the studio with Michael's collaborators to learn about the creative process behind the songs, their videos, and also the deeper, richer meanings behind the lyrical content. I love Joe's chapter on history and its cultural impact. If you haven't read the second edition yet, why not try it on Audible for free? The thing I love about Audible is that they help you get your time back. Listen while you commute, cook, work out, garden, or relax at home. A recent Pew study found that 27% of adults are now saying they haven't read a book in the last year, which is up from 19% way back in 2011. The lack of time is the main reason why. You're listening to this podcast because you love learning and listening to an audiobook is a similarly great experience. Head over to audibletrial.com slash the MJCast and register for a one-month free trial. You're going to love it, especially if you make your free book something Michael Jackson related. Maybe Joe Vogel's Man in the Music to enjoy the history chapter during our History 25 celebrations. So head over to audibletrial.com slash the MJCast right now and sign up. Thank you, Audible, for sponsoring the MJCast. Now, we talked earlier about some pretty heavy stuff. I mentioned the allegations. I mentioned the dependency. I've got to ask, what do you think fame in general did to Michael Jackson? When we were on tour 
we were playing in Mexico City. We were playing at the Aztec Stadium, and I think that it held 200,000 people. It might have been 250,000 people, and we did five shows there. Later on in 1994, I got hired to be part of the team that photographed Woodstock 94, and the audience there was around a half a million people. And for that, I was literally on stage. And what happens is that all human beings have energy. And when, and when you're on stage, all of that human energy is directed in your direction and, and in Michael's case, directed at him. I think that it's a, a dangerous thing. I don't think that it's something that the human ego is meant to sustain. One of the things when I worked for Michael, I vowed and I kept this promise to myself. I never, not one single time did I ever ask him to sign anything. Not one single time. There is not a photograph of him and I that exists other than one picture that a photojournalist shot where I'm in the foreground and Michael and Lisa Marie are in the background but I never asked to have my photograph taken with him. I've never asked any celebrity to sign anything. I've never asked any celebrity to have my photo taken with them. And the reason why is because I want them to see me as apart from the never ending stream of people that are asking them for, for something they're asking to, mm. th that are taking from them. And I think that that served me pretty well with Michael. He, innately got some things about me that, you know, I would never be so presumptuous to, as to say appear, but I, but I wanted to just be just one person in his life that wasn't taking from him. And we had some experiences that were kind of tragic, just of people that just took and took and took and saw a chance of any interaction with Michael as a chance to make money or, or, do something that I just found distasteful to me. If somebody else does that, then that's their business. But it's like there are a couple of authors that I've had sign their books because you have authors sign their books. As far as asking for an autograph, no, that makes me on the realm of a fan. And I'm not, I want to be thought of as a fellow artist, you know? So I don't know if that makes sense or not. It, it makes total sense. It's just reminded me how much of a better man than I, you are, Stephen. I would be like... <laughs> Michael, I need that photo. Come on. <laughs> well, <laughs> Get the and, selfie. And, I mean, you. <laughs> and the thing is, is that it's like, I, and I don't think that it makes me, that it makes me a better man. It's just something that I, that I decided it was a decision that I made. Mm. Um, and, and it's something that I'm incredibly stubborn. And, and it's like, once I've decided this is, this is the thing I'm going to do, then it takes a lot to push me off of that spot. So, well, and, and you nailed it when you said you were working with Michael in a professional capacity. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like that's, I, I totally get it. And uh, we've spoken to some other collaborators that took that tact as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really respect anybody who says that because uh, it's, I guess it's sort of um, acknowledging as well how precious his time was because he would have had people all the time asking for photos and take, take, take an autograph photo. And, you know, it's, I think it's respectful to, you know, respect his time. Michael was so kind that I think that it was really hard for him to say no to anyone. Mm. Michael and Lisa Marie went to 
Memphis for a tribute to Lisa's dad, to Elvis. And it was this big thing. And I didn't know if Michael was going to perform or not. I heard about that and I was like, Michael, you, I, I should go. And I don't know if he would have had me go if I hadn't suggested it. But it was one of those things that so quickly it went from me saying I should go to me going that it's like, I think that it just was really hard for him to say no. I don't. And that kind of got my attention because it turned out the one thing that we did do there was we went to St. Jude Children's Hospital and that made the whole trip worthwhile. But I didn't I didn't shoot any pictures of Michael while we were there. We talked about going to Graceland. I really wanted to get a picture of Michael and Lisa Marie at Graceland. The timing for that just didn't work out well. He was really exhausted. And so when we talked about it, I said, you know what, Michael, why don't you just rest? I don't think that this is so important that it's worth keeping you from your rest, you know? I really want to talk about some of those hospital visits a little later because that mm -hmm. really gets to the heart of Michael. But before we get there, how did you originally come to be employed by Michael Jackson on the books at the start of the history era? We came back from Mexico City and I had met this woman, Beth, in Brazil. She sent me a present to, and I mean, and again, this is the fluke nature of of all of it she sent me a a present and instead of calling me and asking me for my address she sent it to michael's office in beverly hills somebody there called me on the phone and said hey you've got this package here come and pick it up okay so i went to pick up the package and somebody there said to me i don't know if you know this but we've let sam go i was like oh i had no idea and so I just automatically, I thought, well, if Sam's fired, then I'm fired. So I went around to everybody that I knew in the office and stuck out my hand and said, hey, it's been great working with you and I wish you all the best and thank you very much. And, you know, just doing what you do when you're leaving a job. And one of the people whose offices that I poked my head into was Bob Jones, who was Michael's vice president in charge of communications he invited me into his office and we chatted for a bit. And since I knew that he had a more direct day-to-day -day relationship with Michael, I said, Mr. Jones, please pass on to Michael that it was always an honor to work with him. And I thank him very much. And if there's ever anything that I can do for y'all in the future, don't hesitate to call me. And we shook hands and I walked out of his office. Two weeks later, my phone rang and it was Bob's secretary and she said, please hold for Mr. Jones. And he came on and he said, Steve, how would you feel about interviewing for the job of photographer? And I was like, I don't know. No, <laughs> I didn't say that. I said, I said, yes, I would like that very much. I think the next day I went into his office and we sat down. Anytime I'm asked about my time with Michael, part of me is like, it is an absolute fluke. It shouldn't have happened. I had absolutely no business jumping from being the assistant to being the photographer. There were people within Michael's organization that certainly would have agreed with that then and would probably agree with that now. We don't have to discuss <laughs> those people. The equivalent of going from being the assistant to being the photographer is like if you've got in a hospital, in the operating room, 
the guy who's mopping up the blood and suddenly he takes over the surgery. That was sort of like the equivalent of me getting asked to be Michael's photographer. I did the interview with Bob Jones. He said, I'm not even going to send him your portfolio. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to send you to New York. Michael's working on a record there. You're going to do a photo shoot with him. If he likes you, then you got the job. If he doesn't, then you don't. I, I was feeling two different ways in that moment. One, I was like, this is perfect. It's completely up to me. It's not in somebody else's hands. It's in my hands. But also it's like, holy shit. <laughs> I've never, uh, you know, I, I can't, this is, uh, oh my God. And yeah. so you know, what I had to do was I had to produce that shoot. I had to, I had to find a place to shoot. I had to have equipment to shoot with. I had to have backgrounds. I had to have assistance. I had to have a place to process the film. I had to have just all of these things. And another photographer that I worked for, who is a legendary music photographer, whose name is Neil Preston, I had assisted for him for a while and he was a very good friend and I called him up and told him about this opportunity and he's like, oh, no problem, you know, and he sort of walked me through what I needed to do. He, he did what a good mentor does. He mentored me. I had never been to New York City in my life at that point. It was just like, oh, my God, this is crazy. I can't believe that I get to do this. So I went there. A couple of things happened. And, and I think that this is an important part of the story because it speaks to just sort of like what my basic philosophy is. I meet with my two assistants and we're setting up the day before the shoot. And I told them, and I'm not a big fan of any kind of hierarchy. I don't think that I'm a better person than anyone else. I, don't, I detest that. I detest that kind of attitude. So I, I was like, look, you guys, I'm an assistant. This is my story. This is the opportunity that I have. So I don't want you treating me like I'm something special or somebody special. I'm just like you guys. And they're like, cool. Gosh, we really hope you get this gig. And so we're setting up the studio and the phone rings and it's Bob Jones. And he was like, ask your assistants if they would be interested in another day of work on Sunday. I was shooting on Saturday. I was like, okay. And he's like, and I was like, can I ask why? And he's like, well, we have another photographer that's going to do a test with Michael on Sunday. And so I was like, you know, my brain is processing this really fast. And I'm like, wait a minute. I did all the work to get all the equipment here and do all this and do all that. And, and this guy's just going to roll in and, and all that. But I thought, but wait a minute. What really is going to determine whether I get this job or not is what kind of interaction that I have with Michael. It has nothing to do with the camera. It has nothing to do with the backgrounds. It has nothing to do with the lights. It has everything to do with what the interaction is. And so I put, the, the, I put Bob on hold for a second, and I explained that to the two assistants. And they're like, well, no, we want you to get the job. We don't want the other guy to get the job. And I was like... <laughs> Loyal. <laughs> I was like, look, if I sit here and say that I believe it's really about what the interaction is, and I let you guys say you don't want to do this, then I would be full of shit. And I don't think I'm full of shit. 
trust me that if I'm supposed to get this gig, I'm going to get it. And if I'm not supposed to get it, I'm not going to get it. So I'm not, I'm not worried about it either way. I'm going to get everything that I'm supposed to get in my life. And I'm not going to get everything I'm not supposed to get. And they're like, well, we think you're crazy, but sure. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This is just like a really interesting thing. So the next day before Michael got there, Bob Jones showed up and he had the other photographer with him. And the other photographer is this guy named Eddie Wolfel. And Eddie was a German photographer who had been Janet Jackson's photographer and had been Stevie Wonder's photographer and was a million times more qualified for this job than I was. I didn't know everything about his resume, but I knew he was a hot shit photographer. And the thing is, is that I stuck out my hand to him when he got there. I said, hey, man, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. This is where everything is. My guys are going to be here to work for you tomorrow. I wish you all the luck in the world. I treated him in the way that I wanted to be treated in the way that I wanted to treat everybody, because I think that jobs come and go. And what's most important in my life is how I treat people. The day that Eddie came, he left, and a little while later, Michael showed up. And this is my favorite part of the story. So we we shot a couple of Polaroids to test the lighting, and then I put film on the camera and started shooting. I said, okay, let's take a quick break. And Michael was sort of standing off by himself. And I thought, I got to go over and talk to him. And right before he had gotten there, I had just been overcome with nerves, just like, oh, my God, this is what am I doing? I don't belong here. I'm going to fail. I suck. All the things that artists tell themselves. (laughs) And, um, And then I thought, wait a minute. Why did I become a photographer? I became a photographer because it's fun. If I can't have fun doing this, then I may as well just, you know, just pack up my stuff and go home. It's this is about fun. And so that helped me calm down enough. And so then, you know, Michael gets there and we start the shoot and and he take, we take this little break and I walk over to him and I said, Michael, first of all, thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm so grateful. And I said, you know, I need to tell you something. I said, when I was in the sixth grade, I sat next to the whole year. I sat next to a girl named Katrina Thompson I said, in the whole year, she and I had an argument over who was cooler, the Jackson Five or the Osmond Brothers. <laughs> and I said, I said, I just wanted to tell you, I had your back even then. <laughs> and he just busted up laughing. He thought that was so funny. And what it did was it, it just sort of like humanized our relationship. It was, yeah. it, it was not like, oh my God, you're the best thing ever. It was like telling him this, this funny thing about being in sixth grade. And, you know, I mean, and, and I don't know, I, I don't know how old you are, but when I was coming up, the, the who's cooler, the Jackson five or the Osmond brothers, that was a thing. That was yeah. definitely a thing in the, in the late sixties, early seventies. It was really something. I wanted to ask as well, you've, you've mentioned quite a bit about your outlook on how to treat people and how to interact with them and relationships, the importance of building relationships. Mm-hmm. Would you say that, I mean, you were obviously thinking in that way very acutely, even when you started working for Michael, would you say that, that the way that you treated your assistants 
was because of how you had been treated as an assistant? That's a great question. I worked for photographers who had come up and worked as assistants before they became photographers. And I worked for photographers that had just gone straight into shooting. And it seemed like the ones that had gone straight into shooting, when the day was done, they would go over and crack open a beer and sit on their ass and let all the assistants do it. And I just come from kind of working class stock that it's like, it's like, no, this is, this is our project. We all work on this together. And so I just have mm. always been, I just don't like hierarchies. I don't like setting myself as better than someone else or, or, you know, I try not to ever ask anybody to do anything for me that I wouldn't do myself. I think that's really kind of just my upbringing you know, that it's just like, I grew up with three sisters, two older and one younger. They would not hesitate when I was coming up to the three of them gang up on me and beat the crap out of me to let me know that I was not better than any one of them. So, you know, so I just sort of like, I kind of just have this real egalitarian idea about, about work and, and stuff like that. So following the photo shoot you did in New York City with Michael, and, and I'm, I'm visualizing the images. This is the one with the really cool military jacket, right? Right. The very start of the history sessions. Yes. Yeah. So the, the, that military jacket, the woman from Brazil, Beth, she's an art dealer, mm -hmm. and she actually had that jacket in her collection in Brazil. And she just happened to be coming to the States and she loaned me that she wanted to give it to Michael, but it didn't fit him. If you notice in those photos, he's actually holding it together. It's yeah. he's, he, and he was not a really big dude, but he, <laughs> but he like it, this jacket was, was just not big enough to like for him to be able to pull tight to button. So we had to kind of do a workaround with that. She loaned me that jacket to do that photo shoot with him. So again, thank you to Beth from Brazil. And so I'm guessing that you won, like the German guy, obviously, Michael liked your photos better. Well, so what happened was that when we finished the shoot, Michael left, Bob Jones came back into the studio and he said, I have no idea what you said to him, but he likes you. I was like, well, that's nice. That's, that's a, that's a good thing. <laughs> And so thank you, Katrina. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I wish I wish I could speak to her because I always wanted to say thank you to her for getting me the biggest job of my career. So the next day I'm in my hotel room and I'm waiting for the film to get processed and my telephone rings and it's one of the assistants at the studio. And he said, um, what should we do? We just got a phone call that the shoot got canceled. And I was like, oh. Okay. And so I said, hang tight. I'll be there in a minute. I jumped in a taxi. I went down to the studio. We broke down all of the stuff. And from there, I went and picked up the film at the lab and delivered it to Bob Jones. And he was like, I'm going to show him the film, but it looks good to me. And, and it looks like you've got the job. So the weird thing is, I would have thought that at that point, they would have sat down with me and, and had me sign some paperwork or explain to me, this is what is expected of you. This is what is required. This is how, this is how we do this. But that conversation never happened. I never signed 
a deal with him. The last thing I said to Michael that day before he left was, I said, Michael, I will never sell pictures to somebody that you don't want sold. I will never do anything that you, you know, that would bring disrepute to you. I will honor our agreement, but we didn't have any written agreement. It was just, I looked him in the eye and told him that I would be an honorable person until the day that he passed. I never published a single image that I shot of Michael. They sat in my archives. I gave that man my word. I had pictures that I had printed that were in my portfolio, but that was it. Nothing else ever went out that I did of Michael. So that was in mid 1994 that we, we did the New York thing. And then from then on, I would fly to New York use the same studio at Sony Music Studios, set up with backgrounds and do test shots and promo shots of Michael there. And it's really funny because when I look back on those, I don't have regrets, but I really, I really wish that I had had, and this is where, to a certain extent, the people that thought that I was too young and too green, in a way, I kind of agree with them. In a way, I was... I didn't have the confidence in my own craft to be able to really, really create the kind of portraits that I would do now with 30 years of experience. I kind of like, oh, I wish I could go back and do that again, or I wish I could have been, you know, just pushed my creativity and all that. I look at the stuff that Annie Leibovitz shot of him and, and Matthew Ralston, two people who are my photographic heroes, and it's like, oh my God, I hadn't put in my 10,000 hours of working yet to become a master at my craft. I was getting a little bit of conflicting information. Bob Jones sort of had a look that he wanted him to have, and Michael had a look that he wanted him to have. And so there was conflict there, and I didn't know who it was more important to listen to. The power dynamics were the thing that I was least prepared for. There were power dynamics between Bob's people and Michael's security people and, and just like all kinds of things. And that I was just completely unprepared for. I didn't know how to navigate that kind of stuff. And, and so that made it a little bit challenging. I want to really understand, I mean, we don't have to get into the power dynamics and the specific people, but I am curious about what you said about the two different looks. Like Bob wanted him to have a certain look. And did you say that Michael wanted to have a different look? How did you negotiate that? Michael just wanted his skin to be really soft and, and all of that. And part of, I think, why I got the job in the first place was that all the years I worked for Sam, I was one of the assistants who was setting up all the lighting. So I knew exactly how Michael wanted to be lit. Bob would be like, he looks too pristine. He looks too, his skin is too light. You need to make him look darker. And I would show Michael and Michael would be like, wow, that looks great. I like that. That's, you know what I mean? So it was, it was a conflict in that way. I remember just being nervous a lot. I was just always nervous that I was going to screw up. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so 
now I'm a lot more, just as a person, I'm a lot more comfortable in my own skin. I'm more mature. I've had setbacks and I've had successes and stuff like that. I just was pretty new, you know? And, and so it's like one of the people that really, really didn't like the fact that I got hired was Michael's makeup artist, Karen. And she would say that. And, and I, and, and I almost in some ways would agree with her that I, I just was really, really, I was really green to get the opportunity that I got. It's a lot easier for me to acknowledge that now, knowing what I know and knowing how I carry myself as a photographer and what I've learned and, and what I think I could do now in comparison. What was the working relationship like with other people on the set, like Karen and people that you had to, you know, hair and makeup and all of that kind of thing? Um, Karen was, she has a very strong personality and she would, she would push. And I, I'm one of those people that it's like, I will kill you with kindness up until a certain point, And then I won't. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and you know, and, and, and that point arrived when we were shooting the Chaplin single cover and, um, you know, she was telling me that I needed to change my lighting and I, I can't believe I'm telling this story out loud. She kept telling me I had to change my lighting and I, and, and I was like, Michael, let's, let's shoot a Polaroid really quick. And so I got him positioned and we shot a Polaroid and processed it. I said, Michael, I showed it to him. I said, what do you think about the lighting, Michael? He said, it's beautiful. I love it. And I really loud across the studio where everybody could hear it. And I mean, that particular thing, since it was a single cover, there were Sony people there and there was, you know, Mr. Jones was there and just all these different people were there. There were probably, I don't know, maybe 15, 18 people in the studio and I said, I said, Michael likes the lighting. Why don't you just do makeup? Mm. And it was like, oh, snap, <laughs> you know, and, but it was like, it was like, okay, I might be sweet and seem like I'm really passive, but there's a point where I'm not going to be passive anymore. Sometimes you've got to stake your turf like that. You need to. Yeah. And, and there was, I mean, and it's interesting because later on we had a, an okay working relationship. We would be civil to each other, but there was an incident on the, um, on the scream video. It was like the first day of shooting or the second day. And I had shot maybe 25 or 30 rolls of film. And one of the guys on the crew was like, my God, you shoot a lot of film. How many rolls have you shot? And I said, 25 or 30 rolls. And he was like, wow, I wonder how much you've shot in your whole career. And she said about 31 rolls. Since I knew at that point what her game was, I, I just busted up laughing and was like, ah, ha, ha, that's so funny. Okay, I, I get it. That's uh, getting back at me for what I said in New York, and, and that's cool. <laughs> but I'm, you know, it's, I'm not going to let that hurt me. I'm not going to take that personal, you know. The video guys that, I mean, every single shoot that I did, they, he, except for the first one, the test one, we did not have a video crew there, but all the rest of them, the video crew would be there and they'd be shooting me and I got along with them fine. His hair person, I got along with her fine. There was tension sometimes with Mr. Jones because it, I felt like he was, I got the job because I think that he thought that he could 
sort of mold me into who he wanted me to be in his camp. It was hard. I was not prepared for all those dynamics. So did you, in a sense, feel like you were serving two masters, Michael on the one hand and what Michael wanted and then Bob? Yeah, and... And I was just, I mean, and again, it just would have made my life a lot easier if someone had sat down and said, these are the things that are expected of you. And these are what's, this is what not is not expected. You, I had to figure all of that out on my own, all of it. And it was challenging. Stephen, let's circle back a little bit before we start going through each individual history shoot. I'd, I'd love to know about in general, what it was like to shoot Michael Yeah, we had to work really fast. He was really, I mean, it was funny because like as far as a look, he was trying to be more casual, not as much the military looking clothes and the and the amazing stuff that Michael Bush had created for him and stuff like that. And it was more like shirts and, and, you know, and stuff like that. And that made it interesting, you know, and again, in retrospect, there are so many things that I wish that I that I could have done. I just never knew really how much I could push him. If, you know, if I could make fun of him and and stuff like that, that was sort of like now, if I could do it again, I, you know, the way that I approach things right now at this point in my career is that I, I love to make fun of my subjects. I love to make fun of myself. I'm just a lot more comfortable in my own skin now than I was then. I think that, as I recall, when I look at, like right now, I can see a platinum record from the You Are Not Alone single, and and it's a really pretty image. I like it. But it's like, it's just, I wasn't, I didn't really push the envelope with a lot of those portraits like I, like I would now. Are you speaking like a true artist, you know, like, oh, I wish that could have been better or I'm never really happy with your work. What, if in your mind now, what would it look like if it could be what you wanted? I've learned to relax a lot more in my approach. Uh, a couple of years ago, there's a, there's a jazz artist that I got to shoot like four album covers for. He was in Prince's band. He was a sax player in Prince's band. His name is Marcus Anderson over a couple of years, I shot four album covers for him. And I just, I let myself play. I let myself just really relax and have a good time. And because I'm comfortable and and confident in my own technique, I don't have to think about it as much. I just think that I have a much more, a much more playful approach now. And I made a reference earlier to Malcolm Gladwell. Do you know who he is? No, I've heard the name, but no, I, I can't recall. His whole idea is that it takes 10,000 hours of doing something before one really masters it. And, and 10,000 hours is a long time. It's one of the things that makes me sad about the instantaneousness of our culture that it's like, oh, well, I just saw this thing on YouTube. So therefore I'm an expert, you know, and (laughs) there are people that are instantly experts that it's like, you know, I think that we need to really redefine what that word means. I've been doing photography now for, like I said, uh, you know, as a professional for, for 30 years and I feel like that what I have learned in the last five years, it's like, oh my God, uh, it's an exponential amount of growth and learning. 
And I'm hoping for that in the next 10 years that it's exponential again. But I don't ever want to be satisfied. I think that being satisfied, and it's one of the things that I could really identify with Michael on, is that Michael was never really satisfied with a, with a particular anything. You know, I think that he always was searching for an elusive perfection, which is in some ways can be just really frustrating. But in other ways, if you sort of settle into that, then it's like, well, no, it's about the journey. It's not about the destination. Are you able to recall what sort of photography gear you used or preferenced when shooting Michael? What sort of cameras and lenses? And Always Nikons for 35 millimeter. And then for... Um, Medium format, I use, um, medium format is a piece of film that's two and a quarter inches wide. And then depending on the type of camera, it's like a six by seven centimeter or a six by six centimeter or a six by 4.5 centimeter. And those are great for portraiture and stuff like that. For that, I used a camera called a, a Mamiya. And actually it's funny, I, I, you might be able to cut this part out, but we're on video. And so I'm going to show you. Hang on one second. So in 1956, my dad was in Germany and he bought, if I can open it up, he bought this camera right here, which is a, a Roly twin lens reflex. And that shoots a square piece of film, two and a quarter inches by two and a quarter inches. And I actually used that to shoot the Chaplin cover. So. Wow. Yeah. And, and that was really cool because my dad gave me that camera and to be able to use it to shoot that was really pretty awesome. I love how you were able to bring your own history into that shoot. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I've actually used that to shoot a couple of CD covers. So I've been very lucky. What specific photographic techniques would you employ to get the best result out of Michael? I don't know if you would call this a technique or not. Getting back to when I was saying that that I discovered that I was that I was shy and that photographing people was about being shy. When I first moved to North Carolina, I taught photography for several years, and one of the things that I always told my kids was my whole approach is that if I erase everything from myself that's false, everything that's artifice, and I present to you authentically who I am then what you'll reflect back to me is authentically who you are. One of the nicest compliments that I ever got from Michael was he told me one time, he said, Steve, I'm always very, very comfortable in front of your camera. And, and I attribute it to that. So it's not a technique per se, but it's sort of an approach. And I mean, I still do that to this day. And it's part of what I, what I love about what I do because it's when I get to be my most authentic. And, and, and that sort of has influenced how I carry myself in my daily life. And it's like, okay, well, if I can have that success in being authentic in, in my work, then why not be that way in my friendships? And why not be that way in my interactions with everybody? And it's a little bit disarming. I think that sometimes people aren't prepared for it, but it's, it serves me really well. Did you ever get the chance to shoot Michael while he was working in the studio on music? I did a little bit. So he was doing, and I've never heard the track, but he was recording some kind of a Christmas track in the studio with a children's choir at the Hit Factory. 
And I was in there and I shot a bunch of pictures. I, I don't have a single frame of it. I haven't seen the pictures and I've never heard the track. Maybe it was an illusion on my part. But actually, Bryce from France told me that he was talking to Brad Sunberg and Brad Sunberg has video and that he actually could see me in the video shooting pictures at the studio that day. There's that. One of these days I'll sit down and write to Brad and see if he's got, if he can share that with me because I would love to see it. But, and I would love to hear the track because it was a beautiful track. Speaking of the track, so it was when you were there, it was the children's choir singing. Was Michael laying down a vocal or? No, I think that he was just sort of like kind of almost producing. I mean, it was during the history period. So it was Bruce that was producing most of that record. But Michael was just sort of like there and, you know, giving his, you know, his advice. And, and it was sort of a it was a fun kind of party atmosphere. So it was it was kind of a little bit you know, running around and, and having a good time and stuff like that too. So when I finished the test shoot in New York, I went back to LA and I had the job, but I had no idea what that meant or what was going on. And then one day my phone rings and it was, um, it was Wayne Nagan, who was Michael's head of security, real interesting guy from New Orleans. Wayne said, Steve, Michael wants to talk to you. Make sure you're home this afternoon. Okay, I can do that. <laughs> so I basically just sat around my apartment until around three o'clock and the phone rang and um, Wayne came on again. And he said, hold on for Michael. Michael came on and he said, Steve, I need you to take the red eye to New York and be here on Monday morning. And we're going to do a photo shoot of myself and Lisa Marie in the apartment. And then the next day we're flying to Budapest. And this was another interesting little moment, you know, so I had to kind of plan on producing two different things. I had to produce a portrait session in New York. And then I also had to be ready to fly halfway across the world to Budapest to do this other thing. And so it was two different types of film required and two different, just two different approaches. And the one thing that I didn't know was that Lisa Marie had invited her very close friend who was a photographer, who his name escapes me for some reason. I just don't, cannot place the guy's name. He was her friend and she had invited him. So I get to New York I think I must have flown in that morning and I get to Trump Tower and go up to their apartment. A little while later, there's a knock on the door and this other photographer arrives and Lisa Marie introduced him and I. And then she went off to finish getting ready. And the photographer turned to me and was like, who the F are you? And what are you doing here? And what I didn't know that there was going to be any other and, you know what I mean? And he was just like very sort of aggro to me, I tend to process moments like that really fast. And I was like, okay, first of all, I'm Michael's photographer. And it was the first time I'd ever said that. And I said, he wants me to be here. And I'm sorry that nobody told you that I was going to be here. And he was like, well, you have an assistant and I don't even have an assistant and you brought a background and I, you know, and what, and just, he was just really upset. And I said, look, I'm not a threat to you. 
obviously we are not going to both be able to shoot at the same time when you're shooting. If you want to use my assistant, I said, I'm paying him, but go ahead and use my assistant and I'll step out of the room. You can use my background. You can use my lights. If you anything that you want, let's work this out together. It's, I'm not your enemy. And and that sort of diffused the situation. And he did a shoot and I did a shoot. Later that evening, both of us met back with Michael and Lisa Marie. And, and, it, and it's funny because there was always the discussions that their marriage wasn't authentic and that, you know, and all that. But they were like any other newlywed couple that I've ever sat with looking at their photos. They were sitting on the couch, <laughs> holding hands, giggling and, oh, look at you there, honey. There's, you know, and it was just the sweetest thing. It was beautiful. And at the end of that, the other photographer and I, we were both leaving at the same time. And the guy stuck out both hands to me and gave me a, a two-handed handshake and said, Steve, thank you so much. You really made today go much better for me. And it's like, okay, more evidence that what I'm supposed to be doing, not just being a photographer, but what I'm supposed to be doing as a person is diffusing situations that could become volatile. And I kind of felt like that that was the first time that I was representing Michael. Well, I don't want to be representing Michael and be an asshole. So I'm going to be really kind and I'm going to be really generous because that's how Michael was. And, and he didn't have to explain that to me. It just was, it just kind of, kind of followed to me that that was what I was supposed to be doing. So, so then the next morning I get up bright and early and I fly to Budapest and Michael and Lisa Marie were on a charter plane, but I flew over there with Wayne, got checked into the hotel and went back to the airport and got one of the pictures of Michael and Lisa Marie coming out of the plane and coming down the steps. It was one of those situations that it was like, I don't know exactly what I'm supposed to be doing here, but I'm just going to start making images. And I shot everything that I could think of to shoot and kind of like, like found my place. And it was, it was interesting. I mean, the, the best part of that trip was, and you'd said you were going to ask about this, but going to the hospital there with Michael and Lisa Marie was, it was where I switched from trying to show something in a real dynamic way to being as inconspicuous as I could be, because it seemed like and again, I, not anything I was ever told, but it seemed like that what my job was, was to not interfere with Michael's interaction with the people that he was there. The, the thing I try to remind myself as a photographer about almost any situation is that it's not about me. My job is to, is to capture things. It's not to be a performance artist and it's not to become the center of attention. If I think that a photographer that wants to be the center of attention is in the wrong business, but in those situations, it was like, okay, there are moments, there are moments that happen that are seconds and fractions of seconds where you capture where what I'm looking for is I'm looking for when the child looks up and makes eye contact with Michael or Lisa, where they break into that smile that just is like, that just would melt the coldest of hearts. Do you have any specific memories of, of just watching Michael interact with those children in the hospitals? What, what was he doing? What was that like? Was he 
trying to bring them, he was bringing them joy, I guess, and some happiness. Yeah. And I had gone assisting Sam on, uh, to a few hospitals on tour in South America. And so I kind of knew how, like, just sort of operationally how it, it happened. It was probably the moments where I really got to see the real essence of Michael's humanity and his kindness and his, and his empathy. There's a great line in the movie Jerry Maguire when Tom Cruise is talking about uh, living in a cynical world. And the most cynical of people can take anything and make it into, you know, oh, that's bullshit, uh, you know, and, and that especially now that's kind of the, the time that we live in. There was just a, a purity in what Michael's motivation was there that was just about kindness and empathy and you could just, you could just feel it. You could feel it in the in the energy in the room. So you're in Budapest, and you're you're there to shoot the teaser. Mm-hmm. It's a cinematic teaser that ended up playing in movie theaters around the world. Mm-hmm. What was that like? It was, it, it was over the top. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, <laughs> it was, um, it was. I mean, for one thing. One thing that happened there that was really weird was that the director and the cinematographer sought me out. Now, keep in mind, I had had this job for, you know, this was this was really the first shoot that I was doing since I officially had the job. And the, the cinematographer and the director both came to me and they said, now this is what our lighting plan is. What do you think of it? And I was like, dude. I am, I am not worthy. I don't, you know, but, but, you know, I would, you know, say, well, Michael likes really soft light. And I think that this looks really good and all that. And, but I'm not gonna, you know, I I don't feel comfortable with telling you, you need to do this or you need to do that. But I think that the lighting looks good and I think that you'll be fine. But it was for me really strange to be suddenly in this place where, where people were treating me, you know, I mean, eight weeks before I was the assistant, Hey, go grab me a cup of coffee, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and so it was sort of a, a strange transition. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, it does. I mean, a lot of people in different, I mean, even in my industry as a teacher, as a head of department, imposter syndrome is a thing, isn't it? Like you're yeah. suddenly thrust into a new environment where you're in charge of people who are being consulted about stuff. And you're constantly thinking, do I deserve to be here? Am I worthy to be here? Mm-hmm. You know, it feels like yesterday I started my career. Right. So I, I do get that feeling very much. Yeah. It's funny because it's like I can look back at my whole life and and I can see the influences that just that one really fluky thing. I mean, all this started with the guy that had an impacted molar. Every day of my life, when I think about all of the things that I've gotten to do just as a result of that, it's like, that's my reminder to not take it for granted, to not feel like that anything is my birthright, and to be grateful and to, when doctors take their oath to become doctors, the, the they take what's called the Hippocratic Oath, and the shortened version of that is, first, do no harm. And so I try to look at my whole life and think, okay, I've been blessed beyond my wildest dreams and my job, my responsibility is to go through life and not do harm to people and not do harm on a physical level or an emotional level or things like that. 
Stephen, I absolutely love that thinking. What um, considerations did you have to make when shooting that teaser? I mean, there was a lot of people involved, obviously. There was like a rows of people behind Michael marching with him. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would have been difficult probably to stay in front of them all the time, right? What we It was done in, you know, in a lot of different takes and a lot of different angles and stuff like that. I just tried to... Because I had worked on a few film sets before and on other videos with Michael prior to that, I knew to not walk in front of the camera. And, um, (laughs) you know, but it's like I would push to be as close to the camera as I could be without being obtrusive. I just approached it that it's like I want to see images of Michael, but I also want to see images of the whole thing, of the whole spectacle of it all. And I mean, one of my favorite shots from that shoot, it's this shot with a long lens of just rows and rows and rows of soldiers' heads. And Michael's not in the shot, but it's just so cool because it's it's just like this mass of humanity, you know, and mm. and that was really cool. Something that I did there, the steel pour, that that it's like in total maybe three seconds of the whole video clip. And Michael was not there. There was no reason for him to be there when we were doing the steel pour. But I went because I was like, well, of course, I want to see everything. So while they were setting that up, I walked around the factory where they were doing that. And Hungary had just overthrown communism in like maybe a year or two before that the oppression of being a soviet bloc country kind of hung over hungary still certainly in this factory and the factory the workers in the factory to me looked like they had just stepped off the set of schindler's list so i loaded my cameras with black and white film and i went around and just did portraits of the workers in the steel mill it's one of those things that it's like i want to be motivated by curiosity that didn't have anything to do with michael but it's like well no my job as an artist is to see and to and to explore and to and to be curious and and all of that so that was a just a little present that i gave to myself while i was there just to go and and do that i just recently scanned those negatives and it's like oh my god i'm so glad i shot that so wow I hope I get the chance to see those one day at some point. <laughs> I'll send you a, an email with, I, I wrote the story of that whole experience and I wrote it into this essay. I'll send you the copy of the essay. Oh, thank you. I would love to read that. So it was back to New York after Romania? When we went to Budapest, he was still working on the record. And so he went back to New York and from there, I probably did maybe five trips to New York to do the portrait sessions with Michael. And it was like on one of those that one day he called me up and he said, Steve, I want to talk to you. Can you come over to the apartment? And I was like, uh, yeah, sure. I'll be right over. And so I walked over to Trump tower from my hotel and I went upstairs. His chef, Monty was there and he and I chatted for a little bit and then Michael came downstairs and, and Monty said to Michael, hey, I got to run. I'll be back. And so it was like just Michael and I alone in his apartment and we chatted just for a minute or two. And then he said, um, so, Steve, I wanted to ask you, do you know the song Smile? And I was like, 
I think so. And he said, well, here, I'll sing it. And so standing probably four feet away from me, completely acapella, Michael sang Smile. And I don't know that there, if there was ever any other moment in my whole life that I was, I, I mean, it was just like, I don't even know where to look when he's singing this song and the, like the purity of his voice. And he was, he hadn't warmed up or anything or, you know, he just sang it and it was just like, oh my God, going through my mind. It's like, how does this happen to somebody from Port Huron, Michigan? How did I get to be here? What, how is this, how is this possible that this is happening right now? And then he finished the song and I was like, yeah, Michael, I know that song. <laughs> and he was like, do you know anything about it? And I said, no, not really. And he's like, do you know who wrote it? I said, no idea. And he said, well, the music was written by Charlie Chaplin. And I was like, get out of here. No way. And this was what I loved about Michael. Anything that he was interested in, it seemed like he had encyclopedic knowledge of. So he proceeded to tell me, we talked about Charlie Chaplin, and then we talked about the film, The Kid. And he went over to the shelf and pulled a book off the shelf and opened it up to a page. And he said, that picture right there. And it was the picture, which actually on my shelf over there, I have uh, an original eight by 10 that I bought in a, a, like in a store in Greenwich Village that that sells old movie stills. And he gave me the name of the store and the address. And he's like, I need you to go there. I need you to buy that picture. And then I need you to hire a set builder and we need to build a set. And I need you to cast a child that looks like the child. And then we started talking about the child. And he, he said, have you ever heard of Jackie Coogan? And I said, I don't think so. And so then he proceeded to give me the history of Jackie Coogan and how he was one of the first child actors and how his mother and stepfather had basically taken all of his money and, and spent it so that when Jackie came of age, he had nothing to fall back on in the United States, in the entertainment industry, they enacted laws for children who are performers where their parents are required by law to put the money that they earn into a trust. Michael's like, I owe a great debt of gratitude to Jackie Coogan for being there before me. And because of him, the money that I earned when I was a child was there when I became an adult and, you know, and all that. It's appropriate that that record was called history because so much of what Michael was about was, you know, he was always cutting new ground and, and, and raising the bar higher, but he was never far away from his history. He was never far away from his place in the whole history of the entertainment industry. So that was really cool. And, you know, and I, I was probably there for maybe an hour and a half just talking about this project and what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it and, and all that. And I had maybe six, eight weeks to pull all these things together. 
and to find the kid and to hire the the set designer and to have it built and and all of that and finally the day came and I flew to New York and we did that shoot and one of my favorite things that I that happened that day was that we knew that we wanted to do the picture of Michael with the kid and we had two different setups one with um, him sitting on the stoop with the kid and then the other that's the back cover of the smile single where he's embracing the child and that's exactly like a picture from that film the kid you know when we got those accomplished I said Michael I said just for fun I'm picturing something that's like what Andy Warhol used to do where he would repeat images and you know and have them have slight variations in them what I want to do is I want to do just some tight headshots of you and I want to have you like raising your eyebrows and wiggling the mustache and 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 stuff like that. And he immediately got where I was coming from and and he's like, "Yes, let's do that." And so we shot I, I may have only shot one roll of that, but it turned out to be some of my favorite pictures and Michael really liked them a lot. That was one of the things that I did at the end of 1994 while he was still recording the record in New York. That was when I shot the You Are Not Alone cover. And there's just, there's like a whole bunch of studio portraits of him that I shot during that period of time. As I said, if I could go back and do it again, I would have done more (laughs) and and done it better. But I, I still, to look through your camera and see the most famous person in the world it's a pretty daunting thing it's you know it's like oh my god i can't believe i get to do this incredible incredible are there ones that you've got standout memories from um not so much standout memories from the shoots but we did all of those at sony music studios and i ended up becoming friends with many of the people that just worked at sony music studios on staff And this speaks to your question earlier about fame. One night, the people at the studio said, hey, we're going to take you out to dinner to this place in the village. And I was like, cool, that sounds like fun. And so we went to this Chinese restaurant that was in the East Village. And the wait staff was all male drag queens. And they were like just done up to the nines. And where I grew up, I had never seen anything like that in my life. And I was just blown away by it. And so the next day I visited Michael at the hit factory and we were in his little office area there. We got talking about different things and I was like, oh my gosh, Michael, let me tell you about what I did last night. He's like, okay. And so I told him about that and I was like, we should go. You would love that. It's so much fun. And he got really excited for about 10 seconds and then all of a sudden his face kind of got like this and he's like oh i can't do that and i looked at him and i i said security he said yeah and i said you know michael i said you know i you know i have so much respect for you and i and i really love what you do and i admire you I said, but there's not anything, there's not any amount of money that anybody could give me where I would trade places with you. He looked up and he looked me in the eye and he said, why is that, Steve? I said, 
because I can walk out of the studio and walk down Sixth Avenue and nobody knows who I am. I said, it's because of knowing you that I appreciate how precious that is. And it was one of maybe three or four times that I felt like that we connected on a much deeper level than just as photographer and subject that he got, you know, he got that I got what his life was like in that moment. Those times were really, were really, that stands out to me way more than, than any of the photographs I took then. You know what I mean? The, the, uh, the, the thing was, is that it's like, I felt like, I mean, the other thing that we bonded about was that I don't know if anybody in my family will listen to this. It's not that they don't know, but my parents went through a really, really acrimonious divorce when I was 30 years old. So like right before that, in going through that, my father stopped speaking to all four of his children. And that was a huge wound for me. And Michael had a pretty tumultuous relationship with his father. Another time in that room in at the Hit Factory, we talked about our dads. And we we connected over that. We we bonded over that. And you know, and those are the memories that really, really stand out to me that that it's like if you can transcend, you know, someone's celebrity and connect with them on a human level, then you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Do you remember the detail of the conversation you had with Michael about your fathers? What sort of things were, were both you and he saying about your fathers? Just sort of like the nature of it. You know, I mean, he, I mean, one of the things that I, I had met Joseph during that period of time, they sent me to his parents' house to take, there are some of the old pictures that are inside of the booklet for the history record that they had long since lost the negatives and the only pictures of them were literally glued to a wall in his, at his parents' house. And so I went in there with a, a medium format camera and shot pictures of the pictures to recreate negatives so that they could reproduce them in the album. And during that time, his dad had come up to me and just been kind of aggressive with me. And so I, I said to Michael, I said, hey, I met your dad last week. And he said, see? And Michael seemed to intuit that I, that I got what his dad was about. You know, that just from just from that meeting. And I don't even think that that was that first conversation. Then later on, we talked and I told him more details about my dad and, and what I had been through. And, and we just sort of connected. We were just two young men who had difficult relationships with our dads. You know, he didn't tell me any details about anything with, with him and Joseph. But he just got that I got what his dad was about, you know. Got it. So. Got it. Now, you worked on a number of shoots for single covers. You mentioned Smile. There was You Are Not Alone as well. And, and, and you also had the chance, though, to be on the set for a couple of videos for the History album. Mm -hmm. I look at the time that I worked for Michael in kind of in two segments, the New York segment, which also included Budapest, and then the back in California where we um, actually the first video we shot was Scream. That was just amazing. I mean, it was, 
getting to work with Mark Romanek and Harris Savides and Janet. Remember the photographer who came to the studio in New York that day, Eddie, he had gone back to being Janet's photographer, so he was on set. And it was like, oh my God, if I had been an asshole to him, then it would have been a terrible environment to work with him in that in that environment. As it was, we ended up becoming friends and really genuinely liked each other and felt like he treated me like a peer. He was just a great guy. So, And the Scream video, I mean, what a blockbuster. Incredible video. One of my favorites of, of Michael and Janet. Mm-hmm. Amazing. What was it like to shoot it? What was it like to shoot the stills? Were you was back and forth with Mark Romanek around what to shoot or you were just on the set taking as much as you could? The latter. I shot everything that I could. So one of the things that was really weird about that shoot was that there was another photographer besides Eddie and myself. There was a photographer by the name of Jonathan Exley. And Jonathan was kind of a legendary photographer, sort of, he was sort of like an equivalent to Sam Emerson. He was on the set and I was like, wait, what's up with that? You know, what's going on there? (laughs) Unfortunately, and, and I don't know if Michael did this by design, but Michael just never defined, okay, this is what your role is and this is what your role is. He just sort of like threw elements together I don't know if that he didn't think about it, but I think that he was too smart to not think about it. It was a little bit challenging because there was sometimes some friction between Jonathan and I, you know, in scenes of the video, like the scene where he's doing the, um, the, the tennis thing. That was a pretty tight space. And I wanted to get in there and Jonathan wanted to get in there. And at one point he kind of pushed himself in front of me to get in there and there wasn't room for me. And I wasn't very happy about that. And, but there was no authority to go to. Obviously I wasn't going to go to Michael and whine about it. So I was just like, no, you just have to suck it up. Try to be there beforehand, you know, and be and anticipate what's going on and and get your shots and all that. And I mean, we were civil to each other, but there was there was definitely tension there. I've I've spoken to a number of collaborators who say the same thing, not just in terms of photography, but in the studio it was it was very much like that. Like mm-hmm. Michael would intentionally compartmentalize different teams of people that were working on one album and they wouldn't interact and mm-hmm. and there would often be tension between them about which tracks are going to make the album and which aren't. And Michael would be very closed off from people in discussing who else he was working with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've never really got to the bottom of why he did that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think it was for nefarious reasons or for for anything uh, i think that it just was sort of like like hmm, okay let's see what happens you know the great thing about scream on the first day of the shoot i sought out mark romanic and and his director of photography and just wanted them to know who i was and that i wanted to have a good working relationship with them and and like look don't let me be in your way. Please, if I'm being obtrusive to you, don't hesitate to to say, hey, that's too much or whatever. If there's anything that I can do to make every, anything go easier. And that sort of served me really well. And both of them, we ended up leaving at the end of that video as friends. And so that was a really, a really good experience. 
And I've got nothing but respect for both of those men. Sadly, Harris passed away, but he was a great director of photography. Man, he was good. I've heard that there was a pretty funny story around Michael struggling to smash a guitar. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it was a struggle. I think that they had done some, I think they did pre-cuts in it. That um, uh, to, really, to, that I could I could be wrong about that. He smashed two guitars. So the the funny story about that was that I could see what they were going to do, and I could see sort of what the best angle was, and so I placed myself there and got ready, and he smashed the first guitar, and a piece broke off that was the volume and tone knob and landed like literally right at my feet. And I was like, I'm just going to pick that up and stick it right here. And I actually <laughs> still have it to this day. It's, it's here in my office. And one of these days I keep thinking that I want to make like a shadow box with uh, the, the series of images of him smashing the guitar and then the piece and then put it up for sale on eBay or whatever. And, you know, That's a get, great a, idea. get enough money to retire. I'm sure. I, I, I mean, <laughs> on a, on a teacher's salary, we could, I could probably let you have it for like, you know, <laughs> for your annual salary or something, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, uh, <laughs> we're definitely not in the job for the money. That's, that's the truth. Yeah. Anyway. And let's see what else. I mean, it was it was particularly interesting working around Janet. And Janet is so beautiful that I I think the longest conversation that I ever had with her was Good morning, Miss Jackson. I hope you're doing well today. That was like the extent of my conversations <laughs> with Janet because she just like I just felt really, really super shy around her. It was kind of funny, but uh, but I loved seeing their interaction and, and their energy. At one point, Michael's mom came, and it was nice to see her. And I had met her before, so it was nice to see her again. There were some people that came through, but not nearly as many as had, like, on the black or white video. There wasn't, like, this steady stream of celebrities like that one. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. I mean, one of my favorite things that happened was that at one point when they were setting up to do another shoot, I went over to Michael and, and had a whole stack of, uh, of contact sheets. And so I gave him the contact sheets and a loop and he took a red pen and, and circled a shot of him and a shot of Janet. And he's like, what's the largest print that you can make of these? I was like, I don't know, like 30 by 40. And he's like, I want a 30 by 40 of each one for myself and one for Janet. And, and then I think that we ordered one more of the ones of him that he gave to Liz Taylor. And I ordered one for myself of each one. And, and they're like the only ones that exist. They're framed upstairs in my, in my house here of Michael and Janet. And they're like enormous. They're, they're just huge. Scream, what an amazing video. I'm assuming that after that we would have got to childhood. In the months between when I went to Africa and came back from Africa and when I started school at Brooks, I got two jobs working at two different summer camps up in the mountains in California. One was a Girl Scout camp and the other one was a church camp. 
And I just worked as like a caretaker for both of these camps. And they were up in the mountains and they were really, it was beautiful up there. One day I get a fax from Michael's office. We're shooting a video. We need you to go up there. Here's the address. Here's the, here's the location. And I think actually they just sent me a map. And so I start driving and drive up there. And of all the things, the location that we were shooting, the outdoor part of the childhood video was the church camp that I worked at that summer. Wow. And I was like, what in the heck are the odds of that? And that just was insane. It was so cool. Your story is really one of a lot of coincidences, isn't it? It is. Weird, 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 weird stuff. I mean, and that was interesting because it was the outdoor part of it. It was where Michael was sitting on the stump singing. It was very challenging to shoot because it was very static. I mean, he wasn't moving around a lot. It was nighttime. He was cold. In between takes, he would wrap up in this red blanket that they, they had for him. I mean, it was just one night, but it was a long night. I think that we finished about two or three o'clock in the morning. And then when I learned about the other part of it, the, the second part with the children, I said to Michael, I said, you know, I really want to be there to, just to capture that for posterity. So I went to the studio and Michael wasn't around for any of that. I got pictures of the kids and with the blue screen and then... I set up a little studio and I did portraits of each one of the children that were in that. And that was a lot of fun, you know, and a couple of those kids went on to, to have acting careers, you know, the, 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 are, you know, some of them are still in, in the film industry today. So that's kind of cool. Michael said a lot of times that the song Childhood, if you ever want to learn about Michael's heart and, and like there's no more autobiographical song that he wrote than that song. Mm -hmm. When you were on the set, for the shoot, did you get a sense of the gravity and of the importance of this video for him as a person? Yeah, because you could listen to the lyrics and, and his, his vocalizations were just, there, there's a lot of pain in the song and, and all of that. So definitely being tied to the whale movie, it was kind of like, I felt like that it almost didn't get gravity and the attention that it deserved by being associated with that film, you know, it being a sequel and, and all of that. And it's like, well, you know, maybe it would have been better to stand on its own, but definitely it was, it was a very, very serious song. And I suppose you would have understood it really well, having had those earlier conversations about Joseph right. and Michael's childhood. Yeah, definitely. I always just sort of sensed that I don't know where you would draw the line between me being shy and not being pushy, and if that might be one and the same thing, but there were a lot of things that I would have liked to have talked to Michael about that I just didn't want to try to push myself into a forced relationship. I just figured that it would happen, that as much of a relationship as I was supposed to have with him would happen organically rather than trying to instantly be like his best buddy. That doesn't work for me, so... Your time with him culminated on You Are Not Alone, right? Yes. That was pretty incredible. Just the, the theater stuff was so cool. I think that was the Pantages Theater that we shot at. Seeing Michael perform on an empty stage in an empty theater was so... There was something 
really incredible about that, that, that it was just a, a pretty special experience. And then I think that there were only two nights that I was at the outside part of it. Uh, a friend asked me recently about the scene in that video with him with the angel wings. And the truth is, is that that was the day after I was let go. I was let go in the middle of that shoot. It's funny, I had a fan in in London when I was in London for the convention who asked me about that. And I didn't really, I wasn't paying any attention, but the fan had his phone and I thought he was just shooting stills. He was actually shooting video and he published the video with like where he'd done like in a real like TMZ style. I said, well, the reason why you've never seen any pictures of that was because that I shot was because I got fired. And, you know, and I've never made a secret about that that's how my time with Michael ended was that they let me go. He published it with this, like, immediately when I said that, cutting to someone going, <gasps> you know, like it's this big TMZ yeah. scandal. And it was like, uh. you know what? I, I, and, I, and I thought about it and I thought, you know, that's very distasteful to me. And he sort of, he didn't tell me he was filming that when he was asking me that question and, and all that. But it's like, is it worth it to, for me to make a huge deal out of that? And then he'll just make it into a bigger deal and it'll make him more popular and, and all of that. And I was just like, you know what? You got to just let that go. I love the fans' enthusiasm, but there are elements of being fans that make me really sad I love Michael and I love his art and I love his music. I mean, I think that some people would say, oh, you're not even a fan. And it's like, well, I am a fan. I like his stuff and all that. I just have a real hard time with, oh, well, I have this collection, so that makes me a bigger fan than you. Or I have, you know, I have, uh, I, when I was in France last year, I made friends with this couple from Switzerland and, and I actually ended up having a lovely dinner with them in Switzerland a couple of days after the event in France. The husband of this couple was telling me about overhearing two fans talking to each other at the event in Lyon. One fan saying, oh, well, if you don't know this or don't have this, then you must not be a real fan. Mm. And it's like, you know what? You're a fan if you say you are. There's no price of admission for being a fan. There's no minimum requirement for being a fan and to use how much of a fan you are to make yourself feel better than someone else is something that I don't like to speak for Michael. I don't like to presume that I would know how he's thinking or what he would think about things, but I just have a feeling that he wouldn't dig that at all. Yeah, any, I would agree. No, no decent person digs that. You know, and and so and it's weird because I, I feel like by saying that, that sort of sets me on a path of having adversarial relationships with the fans. And I certainly don't want that. But at the same time, it's like, just stop and look at yourself. You don't there's nothing to prove. You know, there's no there, there's no there's no competition. I agree with you completely. There is tension within the fan community. In From my point of view, it doesn't exist between... I don't really interact with a lot of people that are like, oh, I've got this bigger collection than you or whatever. I don't 
you know, I own three physical Michael Jackson things. I don't have a collection. Mm-hmm. But um, you know what I mean? Like I don't interact with a lot of people like that who try to one-up each other in that way. However, the tension that I see that exists in the community is is more around whether you, um, how do I put this, support the activities of his estate these mm-hmm. days based on decisions they've made since he died you know, qu- very questionable decisions in a lot of cases and whether you, you're willing to support them knowing mm-hmm. what we know about them. That's mm-hmm. where I see a lot of tension exist now. Right. And that's something I'm so far outside of the loop of. It's not <laughs> even funny. I mean, I, I didn't even know that they were doing the picture disc set and, yeah. and I found out about it. I think Bryce might have told me. And, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, they're using some of my pictures. And so I got a hold of Sony I mean, and it took a lot of work for me to find the right people at Sony to get a hold of. <laughs> and I said, hey, you're using my pictures. Can I get, at least get a couple of copies of the picture discs? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. You did. Okay, cool. And so they sent me two sets of the picture discs. And I'm like, yeah, I've got those. It, they're just things that are just so far outside of what is my business. And this is sort of chrono- chronologically jumping around a little bit. But when Michael passed, the week before he passed, I was in... California and I was working on a book. One of the things that I did after I left LA was I started shooting architectural photography and I've published six books of architectural photography. And this was a project that I was really excited about. I was working on that and then we found out that my dad had cancer. So I flew back home to North Carolina and I had to wait for my equipment to be shipped from LA back to North Carolina. And the day that the equipment arrived was the day that Michael passed away. And that was obviously devastating, but I was driving the next day to go up and spend the last six weeks of his life with my father. I was sort of a little bit distanced from everything that happened around, I didn't even watch the funeral on television. I just kind of distanced myself. Losing Michael and losing my father are inextricably combined with each other and just sort of like this this blur of time that was that was you know a lot of pain and and all of that. But one of the things that I promised myself that I wouldn't do at that time was I wasn't going to pretend like I had more of a relationship with Michael than I did, as we discussed before. And that I was going to do everything that I could to, if I had $5 for every time somebody's asked me what my opinion is of him and allegations and stuff, and and maybe this is a chicken shit way out, but I have no idea. I wasn't there. What I detest in our culture is people that speak with certainty about things. And it's like, unless I have witness something unless I've experienced something, then anything that I say is just speculation. Mm. I have my direct experiences with Michael and I worked with Michael with children and I never sensed or felt anything untoward or any skeezy energy or anything like that. I would never create something that I didn't actually see or witness or experience. And beyond that, I, I assume you, you teach in a school. I assume that you have a principal. What do you know about your principal, principal's personal life and their, and their <laughs> intimate life? 
you know, I, I hope it's nothing. And so it's like, how, how, how <laughs> Thank could goodness, you, yeah. you know, how could I, how could I presume to know with any certainty one way, one way or the other, I can only speak with any certainty about what my direct experiences were with Michael. And that's the only thing that I will talk about. But that, that's exactly what strikes me as so honorable about your uh, character is that how easy would it be for you to go to TMZ or any any of the press, the Sun or wherever, and, and grab all of those original childhood photos of Michael with the with the kids and mm-hmm. and say, look what you know, look what right. we got, you know, Michael, look what he used to love getting photos with kids all the time, and and then give some kind of bogus interview where you're making stuff up. There's so many people close to Michael who did do those sort of things and mm-hmm. make it quick dollar. I think walking that higher path is is uh, why we love collaborators such as yourself. Ultimately, I have to live with myself. And, and it's like, I mean, I don't, you know, I, I feel uncomfortable that I even alluded to challenging situations that I had with, you know, with a couple of Michael's other collaborators. I, I'm not, I don't think that I'm talking trash about them, but, but there were difficulties there were challenges you're and, not the first and, and, and especially you know with mean? the makeup artist <laughs> <laughs> and and but and the thing is is that it's like it's like i know that that she has her perspective and and that it's just as valid as what mine is ultimately what i carry with me is that through just the weirdest series of of flukes i got the opportunity to work with this person what I try to to carry with me, I mean, and, and this, I said this in Lyon, in the whole time that I worked with Michael, there were people of every race, of every ethnicity, of every religion, and lack thereof, of every identity, sexually, and and all of that. Everyone was welcome. Every single person was welcome. There was never any, like, oh, we can't have that person because of this or that or the other thing. It's like, that seems like a pretty good way to live. That's something that I can hold on to and carry and, and, and have as a, as a, a guideline for, for how I want to carry myself in the world. Beyond that, the experiences going to hospitals and, and just all the different things that Michael did, I feel like that if as much energy was put into fighting for and standing up for the rights of every other person. One of the organizations that I work with now is an organization called the Poor People's Campaign. And they're fighting for people that don't have a lot of means. And, and, you know, and I certainly am not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm also smart enough to realize how much privilege I have and how much privilege I've been given. And so part of how I honor Michael is by doing that work and by showing up and being there to do that work. And I don't go there and say, hey, I'm doing this because of because I used to work for Michael. I go there and do it because I know that it's the right thing to do because I've had, you know, before before Michael did what he did, there were other people that, that set examples for him. And it's like, you know, we we're supposed to all be trying to get along. <laughs> You know, and and that's the gift that Michael gave me. And the way to honor that gift is to continue being that way. 
I agree completely, especially at a time like this where we're, where mankind's facing a tragedy that we haven't seen in a hundred years since the Spanish flu, really. So, well, and and not just that. I mean, the, your your whole nation was on fire, you know, oh. a, a couple of months ago, and, and 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 it's like, oh my gosh, and we need to address this. We need to, you know, I mean, the the one real sadness that I have about my time with Michael came to an end was that I would have loved to have worked with him on Earth Song. I think that I think that Earth Song is probably one of my all-time favorite tracks of his and I didn't get to work with him on it, but it doesn't mean that the message didn't reach me. It's a powerful song. It is so powerful and visually it's amazing too. We'd love to speak with Nick Brandt one day, the mm-hmm. director of that video and also his I don't know if you follow Nick Brandt's um Instagram, but geez, some of the photos he puts up on there of, you know, oh, he's he's an amazing photographer as well. Hmm. We've been lucky to speak to a number of photographers actually uh-huh. who've worked with Michael. Each of them bringing their own different vibe to um mm-hmm. to his world. But you would have to be, I would say, the only photographer I've spoken with, or really probably one of the only collaborators I've spoken with, that worked for Michael in an in an assistant capacity, who he elevated to train in a way that was more of a you know what i mean like one mm-hmm. of his, his pr- principal photographer mm-hmm. so um yeah you have a very unique story yeah it's i still can't believe it sometimes <laughs> <laughs> let's take another break to talk about the mj cast's official shop if you go to the mjcast.com shop you'll see a range of products that we've designed that you can enjoy from mugs to t-shirts to wall art to water bottles, you name it, we've got it. We've got a range of great designs, including the classic MJ Cast Sunset logo, which is our most popular design, and also a range of designs which feature classic Michael Jackson terms or names in the classic Helvetica list style. For example, you can get all of the Jackson's names on a t-shirt, from Michael to Randy to Tito, etc., And if you want, you can get our t-shirt, which features all of Michael Jackson's solo albums listed on the shirt. We've got some absolutely great designs. You can even get them on a notebook to take to work or school. So many things to choose from. We've also recently started selling face masks, which have become extremely popular. So if you want to get a face mask, head over to themjcast.com slash shop. We'd love it if you could grab something from there, not only to support our show, but also to rep Michael Jackson in public. It's so much fun. I love going into the shops, into a shopping center, and you're wearing a, a great Michael Jackson t-shirt or something like that, and, and people always you know, take a second look at the design, and, and often they stop and want to talk about Michael Jackson. It's just great being able to rep the king of pop in public, and you can also support the MJ cast at the same time. So head on over to themjcast.com slash shop and grab some of our awesome merch. Would you be comfortable talking about how things finished up during You Are Not Alone? Or I think I said before, if I knew, I don't identify as a Buddhist, but one of the, but I've gotten a lot of wisdom from Buddhism, and one of the things about Buddhism is is about letting go of attachment. The day that I got the job, because everything in life is temporary, I knew that it was a temp position. I tried to remind myself daily. You have this job for as long as you have this job. This job will have a beginning, it will have a middle, and it will have an end. And you don't know what the last day is going to be. There were some issues with, it took me forever to get paid for stuff. 
And I don't think that this was Michael. I think that this was his accountant agency. And it just took forever. And it was to the point where, oh my God, I'm going to have a hard time paying in my rent because I don't, I, I mean, I'm working for this guy who's got so much money, but I, but I, they're into me for, for a lot of money and I need to get paid. And, and, and I talked to some other people the, the last night on the, on set and, and a couple of other people were like, yeah, it's a problem. And I think that somehow that got back to people and the next morning I got a phone call and they said, we need you to come into the office today. And I was like, I think I'm going to get fired today. <laughs> and I went into the office and they said, we decided to go in another direction. Just the, the typical things that they say without giving you any sp real specific reason. And I was like, okay. And I just let it go with that. And I said, this, this is how much money you're into me for. I need all of it. And the next day I went back and picked up a check for all that money that they owed me. And, you know, so it was, it was really clear that it wasn't like he didn't have the money. It was just that someone was not paying the money. And I, I feel really uncomfortable talking about this because it's like, I, I don't know. I don't, I really don't know. I don't know if, you know, exactly what it was, but. You wouldn't, you are absolutely 100% not the only person who dealt with that. Trust mm -hmm. me. Uh, we've spoken to a number of collaborators who, who point to problems around being remunerated for their work. Um, and, and all of them say the same thing. It wasn't mm -hmm. Michael because a lot of them went to Michael about it mm -hmm. and would say directly to him, hey, this, you know, it's not working out in terms of us getting paid. And then the next day they'd have the money. Right. So it, it all of them say it wasn't to do with him. It was to do with the establishment around him that was dysfunctional. <laughs> so if You're talking about the types of numbers that he's talking about. And, and it's like if he had in a month... $10 million in bills and they could stretch that out, you know, $10 million out and not pay it for, for three months, then they could take the interest on $10 million for two of those three months and make some money on that, you know? And, and I think that that's, that's kind of when you're, when you have that kind of money to throw around, that's kind of how the game is played. Absolutely. And, and you worked with him, I think at a time where this whole financial problem that surrounded him just was really starting. I mean, in the last decade of his life, it got so critical that he was forced into touring and mm -hmm. all kinds of different horrible things. But thank you uh, for sharing with us how things wrapped up there. It's uh, an amazing story uh, overall. And, and just some of those incredible stories you told about, you know, being on set, doing that smile single cover. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. There's something else I want to cover as well. You went to Neverland. Would you be able to give a few little uh, thoughts about what that was like as a place? It was a blast. It was so cool. And I went there a handful of times. I went there with Sam for for the Oprah Winfrey thing. And then I also went, one day Sam called me up and he said, hey, we're going to the ranch, get ready. And we drove up to the ranch. And this is sort of a funny story. Michael was having dinner with former U.S. President Jimmy Carter. They were getting ready to do a project, I think that had to do with doing vaccinations for people in Atlanta, but it might have been nationwide. But Jimmy was going to come for dinner, 
and Michael wanted a picture. And so we drove up there and set up a place, found a place in the house to do a picture of Michael and President Carter. As I was setting up the lights, I noticed there's a very unmistakable smell when something electrical is burning and it's going to have a problem. I could smell that and I said to Sam, I said, Sam, this power pack is gonna blow up. And he's like, no, no, no. And I'm like, no, really, it's, it's going to, trust me. He said, give me just a second, I'll switch it out and it'll be fine. And he's like, no, we don't have time for that. President Carter gets there and meets everybody. I got to shake his hand, which was really cool and come on over here and and Sam shoots a Polaroid and then he puts the film back on and he shoots one frame and on the second frame the the power pack boom really really super loud <laughs> and and I kind of just like looked over and I was like yeah I I could have could have avoided that but <laughs> you know and and Sam was not the he just wasn't the type of person that was going to be like, wow, you were right. I really messed up. You know, he just, you know, he was embarrassed. Michael was embarrassed. I, I switched out the pack and then they did more pictures and everything was fine. But it was former presidents for the rest of their lives have bodyguards with them. And so President Carter's bodyguards came rushing in the room, like looking around, thinking that it was, you know, an, a, an assassination attempt or something. But it was it was just one of those things that was like, oh. that's a, that that in itself is a crazy story. <laughs> it was pretty crazy. And actually, so this is something that nobody ever talks about. This is like almost breaking news. So one of the people that worked for Michael was Marlon Brando's son, Miko. Miko and Michael were, were very good friends, and I don't know the story of how they became to be such close friends, but Miko was getting married, and the reception was going to be at Michael's ranch, and Michael was going to be the best man in the wedding. Miko called me up and he said, because it's at the ranch, Michael only trusts you to be the photographer, so you're going to be my wedding photographer. And this was also really, really early on. It would have been, I'm pretty sure it was in 94. It was when we were still going back and forth to New York. The part that was at the church, the church was in Santa Barbara, and the part that was there, there were all kinds of paparazzi outside and stuff like that. And this one paparazzi kind of got a little bit aggressive with me. And I think that he was trying to just just trying to, to psych me out or something. Michael was there at the thing. And it was a huge wedding party. I mean, it was like, and I'm not a wedding photographer per se, but there were probably 18 bridesmaids and 18 wow. groomsmen. It was enormous. And there was Michael as the best man and, and all that. <laughs> and, um, and... It was a lot of fun. It was really cool. And then the reception was at the ranch. Michael did not come to the reception, but it was like when I was doing pictures of the couple, there were helicopters flying over to try to see what was going on at the ranch. And it was pretty trippy. You know, it was, it was kind of strange. Another thing that happened, the picture that I mentioned where Michael and Lisa Marie are on the front steps of the house and I'm in the foreground... Yeah, I love that photo. Michael 
was hosting International Children's Congress for the Heal the World Foundation. I went up there and covered that for, I think it was three days. I mean, and Michael greeted the children when they first got there. And then on the last day, he came down to the theater and we took pictures of him with each and every one of the kids. And I just turned that film over to the Heal the World Foundation and I've never seen it since. I have no idea what became of it. But I was just impressed with the kids. I mean, these were young people that were really interested in really embracing what the whole idea of Heal the World was about. It made me really proud of the kids and really proud of Michael for doing that. And he invited the press in to sort of like get the, the famous pictures of him walking, him and Lisa Marie walking with that whole group of kids. But it was like those kids were there to work. They were there to work together to think of ideas for how to make things better. I was really honored that I got to be a little tiny part and, and bear witness to that. It was very, very cool. So on that note, Stephen Paul Witsit, how do you think that Michael Jackson should be remembered? It's hard because it's hard to separate how he should be remembered for how I will remember him. And the thing is, is that it's like, I don't, I think that it's presumptuous for me to tell anybody what their memory of him should be. My memories of him will be of even as, as larger than life as he was, there was still so much more there than met the eye. I think that he was deeply intelligent. I think that he was profoundly empathetic. There was an element of him that was really tortured, that he wanted things that were, I mean, I, I've been accused of being really, really idealistic, but I don't think that I'm even in the same, in the same stratosphere of idealism as, as Michael was. I think that he was an artist that was amongst a handful of artists of all time. When I was a kid, I read a book. There's a great book about Michelangelo called The Agony and the Ecstasy. You know, I mean, you can have your Da Vinci's and you can have your um, Van Gogh's, but for me, Michelangelo was an artist that was head and shoulders. Uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, I guess Da Vinci was pretty awesome too. <laughs> but but, <laughs> but it, it's like I see Michael and Michael's art on that level, and his and, and his humanity on on a level like that. But that's just my opinion. Beautiful answer. I was texting with a fan today, and I said, if there was a question that you would want me to answer, and, and she answered me, and she said, when will the podcast be available? No, that's not the question. Um, <laughs> In about three weeks. <laughs> she, said, she, she asked me which of my uh, photo projects with Michael changed me the most emotionally at my mm. inner core in terms of being the person you are today. So I'm going to answer that question if that's okay. You, yeah, go ahead. That sounds like a great one. It would have to be the Smile Project, just because more than anything else, that was a that was a, a, a collaboration between Michael and I, and the fact that he, I'm still to this day blown away by the fact that he trusted me on that, and it's such it's such almost it poetic, strange irony that it's like I don't have a copy of that. I don't own it. And it's the most rare 
of all of Michael's records. There's something really, really interesting about that. I keep, I kind of have mixed feelings. I kind of wish that Sony would re-release it as a single, but at the same time, it's like, it's like, no, it's kind of cool that it's so rare. You know, I just wish I had a copy, but it's like, <laughs> but it's okay that I don't, you know what I mean? It's, it's a, it's a weird thing, but that just all of the things that he told me about that and, and about his relationship with Chaplin and how much he loved and admired him, how much he loved and respected and honored Jackie Coogan and then that to take and to be able to sit there and hear him sing that song just to me and then to be able to collaborate with him and create that it you know I don't I don't need any other honors for the rest of my life I've been I've been blessed with that I, I and and so you know that would have to be the the project I think you're a lucky man to be able to have worked with Michael to create that. And equally, he's a, a lucky man to have been able to work with someone like you, Stephen. Oh, thank you so much. So what what are you up to these days? I'm in quarantine. Um, <laughs> oh, <I'm>, yeah. <laughs> okay, putting that aside. <laughs> um, well, I'm... Uh, so five years ago, I met this woman who is a, is a model... Mm-hmm. And she and I became friends and, and became very, very close friends. And she looked at my at my portrait work and my celebrity work and, and stuff like that. And she said, have you ever thought about shooting fashion? I was like, no, not really. She's like, well, you should consider it. And the next thing I know, I, you know, I started collaborating with her and then we started doing things and she was modeling for New York Fashion Week and then the next thing you know we're going to Las Vegas and shooting some fashion projects there and then we got asked to go and cover Paris Fashion Week. What was amazing about that was that it was like I've never done this before so I'm a beginner and being a beginner at something with this much of a history was really, really refreshing for me because it was like, okay, well, I'm going to make mistakes and I'm going to, and I'm, and I'm learning new skills and new techniques and stuff like that. We've had our work get published in magazines all over the world. And now it's like, well, I guess I shoot fashion a little bit too. On top of all the other things that I do, I'm very, very politically active. And so I, I shoot a lot of political stuff. I, I, there were 24 people running on the Democratic side in the U.S., and I photographed 19 of them mm. and got to meet a couple of them and, and talk to them a little bit. And I'm fascinated just by what it takes to, to have the audacity to think that you want to be the president of my country. <laughs> and And so that's been really interesting. I mentor a few people. That's really important to me. I've been given so much and it's really important to me to pass that on. And I still shoot a little bit of architectural stuff. I feel like that my job, I was just talking to one of my, one of my buddies that I went to college with today earlier. I feel like that my job is to say yes. So if somebody comes to me with a project and says, we want you to do this, 
my job is to say yes. And even if I fail at it, which once in a while I do, if you are successful at something and just do the same thing over and over and over again, that's kind of boring, you know? <laughs> yeah. I would rather attempt to do something that I have no idea if I can do successfully and risk failure and, and maybe fail at it than just repeat myself. Have you made the transition over the years to, to shooting digitally now or is it still on you know film? Absolutely. And it's funny, I one of the things that I've done with all this downtime because of the quarantine, I cataloged all of my film and it seemed like, oh my gosh, I shot so much film and and that's one thing that we didn't talk about, and I'll try to be brief about this. Um, so when I would shoot for Michael, I would go through everything that I shot, and I would put the majority of it into his archives, and then I would keep out frames that were almost exact duplicates and, and hold them in, in my archives. But I always thought that I would have access to his archives, and I don't. So probably 90% of the film that I shot for Michael is in his archives, wherever they might be at this point. I've heard what happened with them during the lean times when he didn't have a lot of money. And I don't know if they've, if they're existent or non-existent, to be honest with you. But the, the stuff I have, it's not very much at all. It's only, you know, it's in the hundreds of frames of film I have of, that are that's actual original film of him in going through and cataloging all of my film you would think oh my gosh it would be so much and it's around 95,000 images and that does sound like a lot of photographs but in a normal year shooting digital i easily shoot 100,000 images in a year shooting digital you know, I mean, so it's just it's just like a, a night and day difference of the quantity of, of stuff that I shoot. So produce. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. OK. And, and I guess my last question for you before we move on to like where people can find you and, and all of that kind of thing is if you could give any tip to a young photographer now, what would your advice be? Probably the most common advice that I give and it sounds counterintuitive. Fail. Fail, 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 fail. Give yourself permission to fail, especially when you're young and starting out. If you're not failing, then that means that you're not trying and you're holding back and you're, and you're only doing the safe thing. And I mean, and that's like, I think that when we were talking about the portrait sessions with Michael, I think that I was so scared of failing that I didn't, and I didn't give myself permission to fail. And that kept me from really breaking out and doing as well as I think that I would do now. I don't think that people will be making a poster of it. Go out and fail, son. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but I mean, it's, if you really, really embrace what that means, think about it in terms of in relationships, in a relationship, you're always going to be with the wrong person until you're with the right one. But all of the wrong people that you're with made you prepared for the right person that you're going to be with. Yeah. You know, all the mistakes that you make prepare you for, for success. So it's like, I, I think that particularly in American culture, we're so obsessive with success and with the illusion of success and all that. And, and for me, it's like, it's like, no, I want to hear about the mistakes you made. I want to hear about, about where you fell short and then where you 
learned from that and then came back the next time and did better. And the next time after that did better still. I love it. I love that thinking. Stephen, as we wrap up, where can people find you online if they want to connect with you? Oh, you said online. I was going to take you literally and say, where can people find you? And I was going to say, well, right now I'm in my office, but I'm going to go upstairs and make something to eat. So after this, I'll be in the kitchen. Uh, (laughs) So um, I have, believe it or not, I have three different websites. So my architectural website is witsitphoto.com. The entertainment website, this is the one that people will most want to look at, is spwitsitphoto.com. And then the fashion website is Witsit Photo, but the photo is spelt F-O-T-O, which I, I fought with my um, website designer over that because I, I don't like things misspelled, but she prevailed anyway. And so that's my, my fashion site. Great. And what about on social media? Twitter, Instagram, have you got those things? I detest Twitter. Um, (laughs) I I don't, I think that if you have to be limited to 254 characters or whatever it is to say something, then you're going to gloss over a lot of wisdom and, and stuff like that. And I think that it just brings out the worst in us. So I'm not on Twitter. My Instagram is Witsit photo. I don't even know what my professional Facebook page is. Hold on. Oh, it's Stephen Paul Witsit photography. Yeah. Duh. Great. And I think now would be an appropriate juncture for me to talk about where people can find us as well on our social networks. We are at themjcast.com. That's our main repository, our website. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as The MJCast. And you can reach us on email as well at themjcast at icloud.com. Now, just a word about subscribing to our podcast. We'd love it if you could subscribe. Uh, You might be listening to us on our website or on YouTube. And if that's the case, you got to try us out on a podcast platform. That's how we are designed to be heard. You can get us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, on Spotify, on Overcast, on all the different Android podcast apps like Podcast Republic. There's so many ways you can get to us. Now, the thing is, with podcasts, if you subscribe, it is awesome because episodes get delivered directly to your device when they're released. You're notified and they drop down to your device ready to listen. You can pause it and come back to it later as you're cleaning the house or exercising. And also you've got those show notes on your screen right there as you're listening and you're able to follow links and check things out that we're talking about as you are listening to the show uninterrupted. So definitely give us a shot on podcast networks. Please rate and review us. That's huge. We love it when people give us a good rating on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, I should say. It's really, really helpful for getting us visibility in the Apple Podcasts store. Well, thank you. And then one last thing. You said that you spoke to Bryce. When I was in Lyon for the MJ Music Day last October, I met a fellow who does fabulous printing in Lyon, we made a bunch of prints and, and people bought them at the event, but we had a very limited number of them. And what we are doing is we are making those prints available. Right now, it's only going to be to Europe. Eventually, it'll be worldwide. There's, I think, 24 different images that are going to be for sale as two different size prints. Those will be going up on the MJ Music Day website as soon as we can get all of it built out, which we're working on that right now. I'm hoping that it'll be built out in time for this when you release the podcast 
which is going to be tomorrow morning at 5 a.m., right? No, no, sorry. (laughs) It's going to be in about, uh, I would say in a month, three to four weeks. Yeah. Great. But so those will be available for people to buy. And I'm really, really excited about it because there are some images that I'm very proud of. Great. So there's MJ Music Day is somewhere they can go to buy prints uh, of your work with Michael Jackson if they live in Europe. Can they do that directly through your website now internationally or not yet? Not yet. I don't sell anything directly through my website. If I were more of an aggressive capitalist, then I would be trying to sell stuff all over the place. But it's it's not something that I've um, that I've pursued as much as I probably should. But selling the stuff in Europe was really great. And it was a lot of fun to do that. And I was really honored that people bought them. People also bought images that I sold at the Kingvention conference in 2017. I sold some stuff there as well. So have you ever been to either of those? No, because I'm in Australia and on that teacher salary we talk, talked about earlier, I'm not able to get over to <laughs> Europe. Okay. So yeah, yeah, one day hopefully. Well, maybe, maybe the idea is maybe you should host something in Australia. and That's uh, a great idea. Make everybody come to you. <laughs> What an idea. Well, yeah. I think uh, we'll wrap things up there. Uh, Stephen, okay. Paul Whitsett, thank you so much for your time. I'm, I feel extremely honored that you would choose to speak with me at the MJ cast. And, and so we can document those incredible stories of you working with the King of Pop and the great photography that you guys were able to accomplish together. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. It was a lot of fun and it was uh, relatively painless. So Thank you very much. That's what we do. All right. Well, uh, enjoy quarantine for however long we're in uh, at home for. But uh, yeah. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. One of my favorite moments with Michael when they did the MTV 10th anniversary, and uh, you can see it on YouTube, Michael sang the song, Will You Be There? Sam had me directly in front of the stage shooting with a long lens over the crowd. And the moment when the beautiful woman uh, that was the angel came down and embraced him from behind, it's one of those moments that when I look at it, I just can't help, but I, I just get really, really emotional watching that. And it's one of my favorite moments ever with Michael. And I was, you know, to get to look through that. And that's one of those things that I don't think I've ever seen a single frame of it. And, wow. you know, but I, I shot the pictures and I know that I had the experience and sometimes having the experiences it has more value in my imagination than being able to see the actual film. And obviously you can see the video of it, but it was a really, really intense moment.